Are you searching for the best in online black radio? Then go to blacktalkradionetwork.com, helping you filter through the noise. Real talk, black talk. The internet is full of half-truths and all-out lies. We've all seen them, and many people on social media complaining about it. Here's your chance to show and prove. WorldAfropedia.com is a black-owned and operated encyclopedia. There are several thousand articles, but we need help. We can't uncover all the truth ourselves. So please, join us and become a writer, editor, or blogger for WorldAfropedia.com today. Every little bit counts. We owe it to the future generations to put the truth out there. Visit worldafropedia.com, the African-centered encyclopedia, a global database of African knowledge for the purpose of bringing about global African wisdom and understanding. Worldafropedia.com. Hitler had the supreme fascist state. And what was he worried about in Europe and in Germany? He was worried about white genetic annihilation. What is everybody in Europe worried about now? White genetic annihilation. All these people from Syria coming up in here. Germans went to the polls today to vote in federal elections. As the polls predicted, Angela Merkel's conservatives won the most votes and she will remain chancellor. But the political landscape in Germany has changed. For the first time in more than half a century, a far-right party has entered parliament. For more, I'm joined now by reporter Esme Nicholson. She's in Berlin. Esme, thanks so much for speaking with us. Thank you for having me. So Angela Merkel wins another term, but I understand that her party did not do as well as she might have hoped? That's right, Michelle. Uh, Although Merkel's conservative bloc got the most votes, it was actually their second worst result since the end of World War II. They got roughly 33% of the vote, or that's what the initial results are saying now. Her main opponent, the centre-left Social Democrats, also did worse. And in fact, they got their lowest result ever. They they are down at 20%. That's punishment, perhaps, for working with Merkel in a grand coalition for so many years. Is the Social Democrats and Merkel's Conservatives have worked for two out of her three terms together. And I understand that the populist anti-immigrant party, the AFD, did better than expected. Uh, yes, they did. They came in at 13%, which puts them in third place. And this is significant. It actually means for the very first time in more than 50 years, there's going to be a right-wing party in the Bundestag, in the lower house. What did the AFD do well? And what impact do you think that they're going to have? They're a young party. They're only four years old. And originally they formed in response to the financial crisis and the bailouts that Germany and the EU gave Greece. Uh, At the last election, they were following this anti-euro, anti-bailout agenda, and they didn't do well enough to enter parliament. But since 2015, when roughly one million asylum seekers came to Germany, the AFD has styled itself as an anti-Islam, anti-immigrant party, and it ran a pretty xenophobic campaign calling, for instance, for a ban on headscarves and minarets. This rhetoric has 
really found resonance among those who feel left behind. This is particularly the case in the former East, among people who never really quite got over the collapse of communism. But we're seeing this evening that some traditionally conservative voters in southern Germany have also turned to the AFD. So Merkel does not have enough votes to govern alone, so she does need to form a coalition. We've understood that she certainly won't be reaching out to the AFD, but what about other potential partners? It looks as though Merkel really only has one option, and that is to form a three-way partnership with the pro-business libertarians and also with the Green Party. So considering this, Merkel has got her work cut out because the Greens and the libertarians, they don't share that much common ground. Um, That said, it wouldn't be beyond Merkel to broker such a coalition. We know she's very good at fostering and forging consensus. We see that on an international level. I think we'll see this on a domestic level. But it could take until Christmas for a new government to form. That's Esme Nicholson in Berlin. Esme, thanks so much for speaking with us. My pleasure, Michelle. Thank you for having me on. Uh, I was the first, one of the first. My first day was state trooper coming, putting me in the backseat of the car, and meeting the other black kids with six of us. And seeing all of those parents and also KKK members uh, having signs and throwing cans at us, spitting at us. We lived in the threat of death every day, every day. So I was just lost in this vacuum uh, between integration and segregation and and racism. That was my childhood. I was angry for years. Angry. Very angry. A milestone in the nation's civil rights struggle is being commemorated today in Little Rock, Arkansas. It has been 60 years since nine African-American students, escorted by federal troops, walked into all-white Little Rock Central High School. It was one of the first tests of the Supreme Court's landmark ruling, Brown versus the Board of Education, which declared segregated schools unconstitutional. NPR's Debbie Elliott joins us now from Little Rock. Good morning, Debbie. Good morning. So let's go back in time to this moment. This was September 1957. Debbie, remind us what happened when those nine black students enrolled at Central High. Well, the segregationist governor at the time, Orville Faubus, called up the state's National Guard to block them from attending, and the school became this flashpoint in the nation's battle over integration. You know, the whole world was watching as these angry and sometimes violent white mobs were yelling and spitting on the black teens. It was a real brutal display of how far a state would go to preserve, you know, the Jim Crow laws in the South and in some ways was the first test of the federal government's resolve to live up to that Brown versus the Board of Education ruling that all Americans uh, deserved an equal opportunity at education. So eventually, President Eisenhower federalized the Guard. He sent in Army paratroopers to escort the students into Central High. And what followed was an incredibly tough year for these black teenagers. The group was tormented by both their classmates and teachers, yet they remained. They stuck it out, establishing themselves as pioneers of school integration in this country, and they became known, you know, forevermore as the Little Rock Nine. The Little Rock Nine. Now, of those nine, eight are still alive, and I gather they'll be back at Central High School today. What's going to be happening? Right. It's a reunion of sorts. They're now in their 70s. Um, They will 
be in the school auditorium for a ceremony. President, former President Bill Clinton will be speaking. He, of course, an Arkansas native and former governor here. And as president, he had signed legislation marking Central High as a national historic site. There have been activities going on for the past week um, sort of honoring uh, the legacy of the Little Rock Nine. Uh, last night at an interfaith service, one of the speakers was Aaron Farmer, who is a young black woman who is now the student body president at Central High School, and she spoke of walking a path made way by the Little Rock Nine. Um, earlier, uh, Ernest Green, one of the group, reflected on what it was like for them to be together now 60 years later. I think I speak for everybody that we're proud to be a Little Rock Nine and uh, friends forever. And it, that club was formed. We had, we had a short membership <laughs> Uh, opportunity. You had, to, you had to be there on the 4th of September to have joined it, and on the 25th it was sealed, so we are a group forever united. And Debbie, just real quick, walk us forward to today and what the sense is in Little Rock of what's changed, what hasn't. Well, you know, everybody is talking about the work not being over. The theme of the event is reflections on progress, but there has been a bit of a backlash from parents and others who say Little Rock schools have now resegregated 60 years later, and that is something that people need to turn their attention to. All right. That's NPR's Debbie Elliott reporting from Little Rock. Thanks a lot. You're welcome. Medical apartheid, the dark history of medical experimentation on black Americans from colonial times to the present. The nation's organ transplant network is proposing a change in how livers are made available. The idea is to make the system more equitable, but some are worried that this change would make things less fair for some people. And we have more now from NPR health correspondent Rob Stein. Himanshu Patel is 39 and lives in Waycross, Georgia. He ran a convenience store until his liver started failing. And when I went in the hospital, they told me that you will need a liver transplant. Without the liver transplant, you might not survive. So Patel is anxiously waiting for a phone call to find out if his doctors found a liver for him. So is Piper Sue. She's also 39, but lives about 700 miles north in Alexandria, Virginia. She's still working as a lawyer, but it's getting harder. I tend to get very tired. Oftentimes I'll have sharp pains in my abdomen from, you know, sort of my, my liver um, voicing its displeasure. And then, you know, I've developed a condition in my legs, which um, sometimes they retain fluid, which can be very painful. Patel and Sue are among more than 16,000 Americans waiting for a liver transplant, but only about 7,000 livers are donated each year, so their odds aren't great. And Julie Heimbach of the Mayo Clinic says their chances depend a lot on where they live. Some areas of the country, patients have to wait a lot longer than in other areas. They have to get much sicker before they can access liver transplant, depending on where they live. The reason is complicated. Part of it is that more organs become available for transplants in some places than others for lots of reasons. There are more car accidents, more deaths from strokes. The heroin epidemic has actually led to a lot of organ donors because people become, you know, overdose, they stop breathing, they become brain dead, and certain areas of the country have more or less of that particular problem. So Heimbach helped come up with a new way to distribute livers. Right now, the sickest patient on the waiting list in each of 11 regions gets the next liver that becomes available in that region. 
the new system would basically expand access to livers to patients within 150 nautical miles from wherever the liver is donated. Whether they're in or out of the region, as long as they're in that 150-mile circle, they would be able to access that donor. But the plan is raising a lot of concerns. This is life-and-death stuff for real people. Raymond Lynch is a transplant surgeon at Emory University in Atlanta. It's important to know that when you export a liver, you import a death. So if you move an organ from one place to another, you've left a hole in that original place, and that hole is going to turn into a death because now somebody in that original place doesn't have an organ transplant. And Lynch argues that the new plan would tend to shift too many livers from less affluent rural areas to richer urban areas. We would be hurting those people who are most vulnerable in the U.S., minorities, people with reduced income, people with reduced access to primary care physicians, people who live in rural locations. All those people already do worse. Julie Heimbach, who came up with the new system, disputes the argument that it would cost lives and take organs away from people who need them most. It would not be less fair. It would be more fair. It's not one-way sharing where the livers are being taken to one particular part of the country. It's, It's a broader sharing. When you ask the patients what they think about all this, predictably their perspective depends on where they live. Piper Sue, who lives in Alexandria, Virginia, where livers are scarce, has been traveling around the country to get listed in as many places as she can. It's been a bit of an odyssey, and I think the best move for everyone involved is to try to move towards you know, the most fair system possible that gets organs to the people who need them the most quickly. But Humanchu Patel, who lives in Waycross, Georgia, where livers are more available, is worried about having to wait longer. They tell me that I have to wait another six months or something like that, then that might put me in the worries that, like, I don't know if I'm going to make it for six months or not. The public has until October 2nd to tell the United Network for Organ Sharing what it thinks about this proposal. Rob Stein, NPR News. New York City is quietly amassing a growing database of DNA samples for use in criminal investigations with little oversight or regulation. The explosive growth is ringing alarm bells for civil liberties groups and defense attorneys. WMYC's Robert Lewis has the story co-reported with The Trace, a nonprofit newsroom focused on guns in America. Hi, how are you? Pleasure to meet you. This is the modest two-story home where Terrell Gills lives with his mother in Binghamton. I'm betting it's uh, pretty nice to be back here. Oh, it's great. great. Can you take any issue with you, Mom? Absolutely. Absolutely. It was early morning when the NYPD came to arrest him here in 2015 for an armed robbery at a Dunkin' Donuts in Jamaica, Queens. It just happened so fast because they just came and woke me up. In surveillance video, the robber appears to have an earring in his right ear. Gills has an earring in his left. The robber holds the knife in his left hand. Gills is right-handed. The robber looks to be stocky and six feet tall. Gills wishes he was six feet tall. He's 5'6 and 120 pounds. And police had already arrested another guy, six feet tall, 200 pounds, for two other robberies that fit the same pattern. But there was one crucial piece of evidence that led police to arrest Gills for the third robbery. My lawyer, Miss Martinez, you know, she came and represented me, and I'm like, Okay, but I had nothing to do with it. And she said that it was something with DNA. DNA, 
It's that gee whiz science that allowed the NYPD to scrape skin cells off the touchscreen at the Dunkin' Donuts and run the genetic profile through a state database looking for a match. And they got one. Turns out Gills used to visit that Dunkin' Donuts with his six-year-old daughter, where he'd get the usual, a chocolate frosted, no sprinkles, and she'd eat a glazed. His DNA was on file because of a prior drug conviction. I was just thinking, like, how I just end up in this place because I didn't do a thing. He couldn't make bail and spent 18 months on Rikers Island. The jury acquitted him in February over its lunch break. My life is just stopped right now. It's like you don't have life when you're in jail. Your life is gone. You lost everything. DNA is helping solve countless cases, bringing justice to victims nationwide. But the Gills case shows how easily science can lead police astray, an issue that becomes more critical as more and more genetic profiles wind up on government computers. At the current rate, there will be one million DNA profiles sitting in a New York database in the next five years. The fact is, negligence and even fraud can and do happen every day at every stage of the collection and analysis of forensic DNA. Robert Perry is the New York Civil Liberty Union's legislative director. Samples are mislabeled, samples are cross-contaminated, Samples are misinterpreted and even misrepresented in courtrooms. The NYCLU is among the groups that have campaigned against the growth of law enforcement DNA databases with little success. The state database was created by state law and was originally limited to murderers and sex offenders. But it has expanded five times since 1996 and now includes anyone convicted of a crime, misdemeanor or felony. It has almost 700,000 profiles. New York City's DNA database is smaller, with about 65,000 profiles, but there's no law regulating what local law enforcement can keep. DNA from witnesses, victims, random passers-by, all up for grabs. The NYCLU's Robert Perry again. We simply don't have sufficient oversight and investigation of what's being done at the local level regarding the collection and use of forensic DNA samples. That's something that is really incumbent upon lawmakers to take up. The city added about 3,000 new profiles a year to the local database up until 2014. The rates nearly tripled since then. Deputy Chief Emmanuel Katranakis is commanding officer of the NYPD's Forensic Investigations Division. He says they make thousands of DNA matches a year to help solve crimes. We're very keen on making certain that we're always respecting the constitutional rights of New Yorkers. That's, that's, that's paramount. But what does that mean? Who is in there? Is anyone whose DNA was compelled in a court case? That's Ann Givens, our partner at The Trace. It would be more appropriate if the medical examiner spoke. The ME's office runs the tests and maintains the database, and they referred us back to the NYPD. You can find a vivid example of how aggressive the department has become about collecting DNA in the files of Rebecca Cavanaugh, a legal aid attorney in Brooklyn. It was just so egregious that it just was beyond the pale. Cops held her client in a cell at the 75th precinct for 13 hours in a weapons possession case until he agreed to give a DNA sample. Cavanaugh flipped through the hearing transcript. And then the court says, that's the whole problem, the whole issue, which your witness didn't address. The issue is the coerciveness in the precinct of holding the defendant hostage to giving... The judge threw out the evidence. Another example can be found in the files of the Karina Vitrano case. She's the jogger who was murdered in Howard Beach, Queens last year. Police recovered DNA from under her fingernails and on her cell phone and neck. 
they ran the samples through the database but got no matches. Over the next few months, they collected and tested DNA from more than 150 people, according to court records in the case. Police haven't said how they identified the group. In some instances, cops collected discarded items like a cigarette butt and sent them to the crime lab. Some gave a swab voluntarily, and it seems to have worked. They finally got a match, and a suspect is in custody. But all those other people, who apparently had nothing to do with the murder, most of their DNA was flagged as, quote, suitable for entry into the city's database. Barry Sheck served on the state's Commission on Forensic Science, which regulates public DNA labs statewide. Even he doesn't know whose DNA is on file in New York City. As a commissioner, I ask this ad nauseum for, you know, close to two decades. You're telling me, well, we don't put a rape victim's DNA profile in there. And I say, great, you shouldn't. But uh, where's that written down? Where's your set of rules and regulations? And I personally never saw them. Sheck is co-founder of the Innocence Project, which has used DNA to help exonerate wrongfully convicted people. So he's a fan of DNA, but he says there are limits. If you wanted to solve every case, you would take DNA from every person at birth, right? I think most people in the United States would be very worried about trusting the government to have their DNA. Some defense attorneys have gotten protective orders to keep clients' DNA out of the database. Others are filing motions to make sure their client's DNA is removed from the database if the charges are dropped or if they're found not guilty. Aaron Murphy is a professor at the NYU Law School and author of Inside the Cell, The Dark Side of Forensic DNA. She says part of the concern is where the science is headed in the next few decades, particularly as cops turn to giant computers to predict who might commit crimes. We are letting the government acquire huge amounts, millions of peoples of genetic information that will serve them in generations going forward without a whole lot of restrictions on what can or cannot be done with that information. The medical examiner's office says it has, quote, stringent rules governing use of the local database, but it refused to provide them. Robert Lewis, WNYC News. It's not racism. The head of the Air Force Academy has addressed the fact that uh, African-American members of the Academy were uh, unfortunately confronted with uh, racial slurs written on message boards toward them. And so um, Lieutenant General Jay Silveria responded to that, and he addressed these cadets, and here's what he had to say. If you're outraged by those words, then you're in the right place. You should be outraged not only as an airman, but as a human being. If you can't teach someone from another gender, whether that's a man or a woman, with dignity and respect, then you need to get out. If you demean someone in any way, then you need to get out. And if you can't treat someone from another race or a different color skin with dignity and respect, then you need to get out. I would be naive, and we would all be naive to think that everything is perfect here. We would be naive to think that we shouldn't discuss this topic. We would also be tone deaf not to think about the backdrop of what's going on in our country. Things like Charlottesville and Ferguson, the protests in the NFL. Who doesn't love Lieutenant General uh, Jay Silveria. Well, I probably have an answer for that. Uh, but it, the 
the alt-right guys, et cetera, that uh, love Charlottesville. Well, that's a lieutenant general there, so I assume you're saluting, right? Um, and uh, it's, it's actually so easy, and it, it's such common sense. And basically what he's saying is, I got cadets here who are white, black, Latino, et cetera. We're all fighting together in a U.S. military. Mm-hmm. This is not complicated. This is not remotely hard. Of course, to be a team. Yeah, of course we're going to respect one another. You're going to pick on our forces, mm-hmm. our, our guys who signed up to possibly give their lives for this country, and you're going to insult them that way, and you didn't think I was going to stand up for them? Come on. And this, so this guy is fantastic. It's, the only thing that's a shame is that that speech seems extraordinary today, yeah. when it should be perfectly ordinary. Uh, I love it, man, I, uh, because of the strength of it, you know, in a world where we're diluting messages right and left and, you know, uh, well-meaning NFL players are talking about linking arms and therefore massively diluting the intent of a righteous protest that Colin Kaepernick started and NFL owners are, some of, one of whom at least has given a million dollars to Donald Trump, you know, saying that he's linking, he, he on the wrong side of this. Um, and, and here it is, as you say, Jenk, so simple. Like, he was like, he didn't just say there's no place for it. He said, if you think it, get out. Mm-hmm. I don't want you here. Get out. Uh, I loved it. That was bold and great. And, and think about why it's important militarily, too. If you're not going to defend you, you, your fellow, uh, you know, Air Force uh, cadet uh, because of the color of their skin or for any other reason... Well, then we can't rely on you. We can't trust you. You're going to let them down in the in the battlefield. I mean, that's exactly the kind of uh, division that our enemies would love. If you're going to have a strong military, remember the this is the Air Force, but remember the Army slogan was an "Army of One." The whole point of that is we we're we're better together. Uh, again, this should be elementary, but in this day and age, people be mad at him for pointing out Ferguson and the NFL and. Saying like, oh, now you want to have blacks have the same rights and not have the police abuse them or shoot at them when they're unarmed. <laughs> of course, of course they should have the same rights. Of course they should be protected just like everyone else. That's what the whole point of the country is. Yeah, I guess, you know, I thought it was a, a great speech. As someone whose husband went to this Air Force Academy, we were really into this story. I think the question now is how do you operationalize this impassioned speech, right? Where does it go? They're not going to get out. They came here, right? Mm -hmm. Um, They're not going to leave. So how do we investigate this thoroughly? How do we find the folks who um, kind of perpetuated this? And then how do we uh, punish them? Because although it may not be illegal, the military has its own set of guidelines, right, that these folks need to be brought to justice and, and, you know, in whatever form that the academy would deem appropriate, um, and I just think this is particularly interesting in the context of uh, a national conversation about uh, the patriotism of black folks. Uh, so how can you expect black people to serve, right, when you haven't rooted out racism in the military? Um, I, I just think it's, it's an interesting conversation that Trump should be having. He should be outraged by this and not necessarily, you know, oh, yeah. folks out- taking a knee. He'll be outraged, <laughs> but if, if he responds to this in any way or is made aware of it, I imagine he'll be outraged in the other way, that here was this guy expressing uh, some degree of uh, outrage at Trump's behavior, mm-hmm. right, uh, and a degree of sympathy and understanding for what happened in Charlottesville, what happened in Ferguson, mentioning Ferguson, you know, I mean, uh, and uh, and the NFL, protests in the NFL. That wasn't saying, 
we've got guys disrespecting the flag and disrespecting us in the NFL. That was him saying, we got an issue here where we have people taking a stand for a right that they believe in in the NFL, and we're condemning them. He, I think he's on the right side of every single issue. Yeah, and, it, and it, what he's saying here is, to, to Ambria's point, look, you want everybody to salute the troops uh, during the national anthem. Well, these are African Americans who are the troops, and I'm not going to let you come in here and, and insult them this way, degrade them this way. And if you really cared about the troops, you'd care a lot more about the horrible uh, degradation and, and insults and threats that are going to actual troops mm -hmm. than you would about whether somebody's exercising their freedom of speech uh, in, in a ceremony of any sort. Mm -hmm. And that is inarguable. Billy Holiday, I sing your blues. Bet your life against me and I swear to God you'll lose it. Motherfuck the cops, we still singing for St. Louis. Motherfuck the cops, we still singing for St. Louis. Motherfuck the cops, we still singing for St. Louis. People protesting against what they see as systemic police violence against African Americans aren't the only St. Louis area residents who say they want to be heard. Many white residents don't support the protests. They can't understand why demonstrators are rallying around the not guilty verdict for Jason Stockley, a white former St. Louis police officer who shot and killed Anthony Lamar Smith, a black man, in 2011. St. Louis Public Radio's Nancy Fowler talked with people who say they believe in racial justice, but not the way protesters are pursuing it. Jennifer Barfield, a white woman who lives in Maplewood, says there's no question that racism is a big problem in the St. Louis area. I think we're one of the most racist cities in the United States, and I've born and raised here. I've seen it. But what Barfield says she can't see is why demonstrators are supporting Anthony Lamar Smith, who was convicted of a drug distribution charge. Police say he had heroin in his vehicle the night he was killed. To protest about that, to me, is not helping their cause. I know I have white friends my age who have children who have died from heroin overdoses. I can name three. Others share Barfield's concerns. To me, and obviously I'm a white person and I live in a white neighborhood, so to me what I hear is you're rallying around a criminal. That's Valerie Emms, who lives in Barnhart. Her husband is a police officer. I believe that Stocky had a period of time to make a split-second decision and that he decided to shoot because he was in fear for his life. But many protesters say they fear for their lives every time they get stopped by law enforcement, which is often, says Kevin Nevels, an African-American Army veteran from Bell Fountain Neighbors, who mentors more than a dozen children. How many black folks in this audience have been racially profiled and been harassed by police? Everybody. At a town hall last week that sought input about hiring a new St. Louis police chief, Neville's told about one incident in which police searched his body for drugs he says didn't exist. A police officer pulled me over, take me out of my vehicle, take my belt, and have me drop my pants to my ankles and reach his hand inside my underwear looking for crack. And it makes a difference. I had four of those kids with me when those police officers did that to me. I was in tears because what do I say to them? Barfield and Ems and other white people I spoke with who don't back the protests advocate for more discussion and clergy involvement. 
But Nevels says he and other demonstrators are tired of doing things that don't work. You can't beat my community down and expect me to keep holding prayer vigils and, and lighting candles and begging the police to please stop. Neville says no matter what, Anthony Lamar Smith should have lived to have his day in court. How people view the protest depends on their personal experience, says Calvin Lai, an assistant professor in psychological and brain sciences at Washington University. Lai says it makes sense for someone like Neville's or his family to fear the police. Whereas for others, the experiences might be mostly positive, right? Like they might see the police officer at the Starbucks every morning, you know, while they're getting the coffee and having a friendly chat. Lai says people who think the protests are misguided seem to be zeroing in on the details of the verdict. But protesters are looking at a bigger picture of what they see as continual excessive force against African Americans. Jennifer Barfield said she sees both, but can't get past the drug allegations against Smith. I completely agree. It is much bigger than that verdict. They're protesting the systemic problems that they see, but they're doing it on the heels of a verdict of a criminal, a heroin dealer. I'm Nancy Fowler, St. Louis Public Radio. I I read the headline of this story and I thought, well, look, wait a minute. Now, his injury looks terrible, but we need more context here. Was it friends and they were goofing around? I remember there was a rope in a near a lake by our house, and who knows, maybe you goofing around and you, you get caught in the wrong way, right? Are they friends? Are they not friends? Uh, and then how do the authorities react? Are they, do they take it seriously? Do they not take it seriously? We'll get to that in a second. Um, and when you hear the details, no, it's worse than I imagine. So, look, kids have complicated relationships. I remember I used to get into fights with some older kids in the neighborhood, and then we'd coexist. We'd be on the bus. And even sometimes might have not a friendly Jane, I'm sorry. I'm sorry for interrupting you. In Claremont, an alleged racially motivated incident between teenagers and a young biracial boy in town has rocked the community over the past several weeks. The victim's family says it's an open and shut case of racism. The teenager's family says the kids were playing with a rope and climbing trees when things went tragically wrong. They say it was not the attempted lynching that some are making it out to be. The incident has also divided the community as a whole. Some say it points to racism in the area. Others say that's blowing things out of proportion. NHPR's Brita Green reports. Daddy Pop's Tumble In Diner in Claremont is one of those metal-sided diner cars straight out of the 1940s. Inside, Fallon Carter, the owner's daughter, is talking about the alleged attack with her mom and a friend. They're sitting on the other side of the counter as she works, the vent fan over the griddle on full blast. He just so happened to be uh, of a different origin. Like, I mean, we're all Americans here. We're all from a different area of the world. Carter says she doesn't know what the motivation was, but it's probably just bullying. That is a problem here. Her friend, Natalie Jarvis, jumps right, that in. That was my point, that if that hadn't been the method of the bullying, then um, this wouldn't have been probably interpreted and blown up this way as a racist thing. Race, owner Deborah Kirby adds, is not an issue in Claremont. After all, the city is more than 95% white. Well, then there are people that are like so-called, that I don't know, skinheads or what, supremacists, whatever. And um, you'll see swastika tattoos and stuff. Around town. Yeah, and 
I don't even see them really bothering anybody. So I, I think because we're not inner city, we're still out in the boonies, kind of. So in this area, I don't find that racism is a problem. I've heard this perspective a fair amount over the past several weeks. And at the city level, while the city manager and mayor denounce racism, they say broader anti-violence efforts are a good way to respond. They haven't wanted to focus on just race. Others say that response misses the point. The idea that that an act like putting a noose around someone's neck could be called, oh, they were just kidding around, this is bullying, that's not bullying. That's Rachel Edens. She lives about 25 miles up the road from Claremont, where she advises black, first-generation, and low-income college students. And she also works on issues like diversity and inclusivity. She's from the South and says, moving to this area, she was stunned at the level of racism she's encountered. She says at one point, there were three Confederate flags visible just on the street where she lives. Uh, There's definitely a feeling of not being welcomed, of being in danger, um, of always wondering when something is going to happen. Olivia Lapierre is a racial justice organizer in the Upper Valley. She says she hears this idea that was brought up in the diner often, that there just aren't that many people of color here, and therefore race isn't an issue. Um, Which is, I mean, first you're denying the existence of people of color who do live here um, and their experiences and their oppression. But in addition to you're saying that, like, people, that racism only exists where black people exist, that we are the problem and we bring the problems with us. Lapierre says, in her experience, even well-intentioned people don't stick around to make lasting change over the long term. She spoke at a vigil in town after the incident hit the news, leading the crowd in a Black Lives Matter chant. A smaller group met again last week. About 40 people, mostly white, several from out of town, sat in folding chairs in a church meeting room downtown. Amy Cousins was one of them. She drove about an hour to be here with two of her children. She's white. Her husband is black. I grew up in these small towns. I feel happy and comfortable in these small towns. I feel, for the most part, happy and comfortable for my ch- with my children and my husband. Um, but there are incidents that come at us, um, smaller, but there's that fear of bigger. The group broke into small discussion circles. They answered prompts like, what do you like about the community where you live? And what do you think could be improved? Cousins' children joined the discussion for a while. Adia is 10. The people that I just randomly meet are nice and they don't really really bring up anything about, you know, like my skin tone or anything like that. But Adia also has teenage siblings, and her mom says as they've gotten older, they get more comments around their race. You know, things that teenagers think are jokey, um, but I've also taught them when push comes to shove, people who they think might be on their side will not necessarily be on their side. In the small groups, participants were also asked whether they'd personally witnessed an act of discrimination and what they did about it. This, racial justice advocates say, is one area where people can really help, learning to intervene, to have those hard conversations day to day. As the meeting wrapped up, its organizer said she'll plan another gathering next month. Bring a friend, she said. For a city of 13,000, they could use a few more people 
to make a difference. For NHPR News, I'm Brita Green. You know, I always ask God to take me away from New Orleans. I want to live a different life. And I thought that was my blessing, not knowing this was going to really mess my head up. Oh, my God, this is beautiful. Kathy Phipps signed a lease on a house that means a lease on a new life. Oh, bless your soul. She's moving into a community that's embracing her with open arms. When we first met Kathy, she was a hurricane evacuee, surprised to find herself in Utah. Utah? I was really afraid there because I noticed I didn't see any black people. But I said, no, they probably come in. You know, they'll come out when it's all over. Maybe they're thinking, they're thinking everybody's like me. They don't want to get involved with this action, but they'll come out. <laughs> when I noticed they wasn't coming out, I went to getting frightened living there by myself. When a lady told me it's 1% black in Utah, in Pleasant Grove, Utah, I said, why did people send me here? There I am, can't sleep, thinking somebody's going to come and just lynch us. <laughs> For Utah, news at 5 starts now. I mean, it was bad in Utah. You know, I thought we're in Draper, Utah, and to hear someone shouting that as loud as they could at some little kid, I, I was shocked. Now at 5, he is talking about the alleged actions of this man, Mark Porter, who is now facing federal charges for hate crime. Good to be with you. I'm Don Hudson. And I'm Kim Fisher. Thanks for joining us for the News at 5. Now, that alleged hate crime happened nearly a year ago in Draper. Earlier this month, Porter was indicted for the crimes against that man and his son. Today, the father spoke about that day for the first time. He shared his story with ABC4 Utah's Marcus Ortiz. Now, Marcus joins us live from Draper. Marcus, what happened? Well, at the time, uh, both of these parties uh, lived at this apartment complex in Draper. Now, last November, this seven-year-old learned firsthand what a hate crime is all about. The neighbor uh, was calling him racist names, uh, pretty specific racist names. My son's African-American, um, a mixed race. That neighbor, Mark Porter, allegedly called the seven-year-old the N-word. Uh, when it happened, he just kept coming in and saying, Dad, there's a man, he's yelling at me. Mike Woldvogel went outside of his apartment in Draper to learn why his son was being yelled at. He claims Porter kept repeating the N-word. To hear someone shouting that as loud as they could at some little kid, I, I was shocked. According to charging documents, Walvogel claims he heard Porter shout, get out of here, N. The document shows he told Porter not to yell at his son. Then Porter reached over the railing and hit Walvogel's neck with a stun cane. Walvogel says he was being tasered in the neck. I just remember hearing the, the, um, you know, the taser as it was sparking, you know, as it came over and it hit my neck and it, it dropped me. It, it, it took me down and, and, uh, uh, you know, I just was super wobbly and the, all I could really focus on was my son as he was screaming. According to a Draper police report, Porter resisted arrest and threatened to defecate while in the back of the patrol car, which he did. Even after nearly a year, Waldvogel says his son struggles with what happened that day. Even now when he sees someone that kind of resembles that, that man, he still is very cautious. So it, it's, it's stuck with him for sure. Now, the state dismissed its case against uh, Porter uh, in favor of the federal indictment. Uh, the federal system is much harsher uh, for hate crimes 
Now, according to uh, the dad, he says that he is very appreciative the way Draper police handled the situation, especially with his son. With his son. He says his son was uh, given great protection and also great comfort during and after this incident. In Draper, Marcus Ortiz reporting. I watched a white riot in Portland, Oregon on television the other night. Also, a white man in Portland is accused of using a racial slur after encountering a black man, and then police say he tried to get his pit bull to attack him. K2's Catherine Van is live in North Portland with this story tonight. And Catherine, the guy told officers the suspect just would not back off. Yeah, the victim was just trying to get home after he got off this bus stop. And that's when prosecutors say he heard the racial slur and the threats. Well, the victim got scared, so he ran into this plaid pantry, and the taunts didn't stop there. Right off Marine Drive, Jerry Duquette got off his bus to walk home Sunday afternoon. He told police he noticed a white man with a pit bull on a leash following him. According to court documents, Duquette, who is black, told the man he did not like pit bulls and he should get the dog away from him. That's when the man reportedly said, get him, followed by a racial slur and you're in the wrong neighborhood. When the dog didn't attack, the man allegedly threatened Duquette. Frightened, Duquette ran into this plaid pantry store. The man identified in court documents as 40-year-old Matthew Karcher followed him inside. There, Duquette said Karcher threatened to hurt him again. An employee told him to leave while Duquette called the police. Later, Karcher told police Duquette looked lost, and when he tried to talk to him, he said Duquette started freaking out about his pit bull. He then denied following Duquette into the store. Police arrested Karcher for menacing and intimidation. It's not Karcher's first run-in with the law. He was arrested in December for allegedly crashing into a Portland police car and driving off and resisting arrest. Now, I did speak to someone who says she's seen Karcher hang out at this plaid pantry several times before. Karcher is still in jail. He was arraigned yesterday and is due back in court November 3rd. We're live in, uh, in North Portland. Catherine Rand, K2 News. Wouldn't you love to see one of these NFL owners when somebody disrespects our flag to say, get that son of a bitch off the field right now, out, he's fired. He's fired! Breaking right now at 6, a local fire chief just got called out by township supervisors over his Facebook post. He used a racial slur to describe Steelers head coach Mike Tomlin over the team's decision to stay off the field for the national anthem in Chicago. Channel 11's Kara Sapita joins us live with that response from township leaders. Kara. Lisa, here in Washington County, several firefighters reached out to Channel 11 saying they were uncomfortable with a comment made by a Cecil fire chief during yesterday's game about the coach. We sent that comment to township supervisors who told us they were, quote, deeply disturbed. Volunteer fire chief Paul Smith was commenting on a post about the Steelers' decision not to participate in the national anthem on the field, writing, quote, Tomlin just added himself to the list of no good N-words. 
Yes, I said it, end quote. Smith is captain of the Cecil Township Volunteer Fire Department Number 2 here in Muse. He is currently out of the country on vacation and didn't respond to our request for a comment this afternoon, but we have interviewed him in the past as seen in this video. Cecil Township's manager tells Channel 11 in part the Cecil Township Board of Supervisors is deeply disturbed by the comments made by volunteer Chief Smith and in no way, shape or form condone his comments. We will be reaching out to the Muse Fire Department's president to find out if any action will be taken internally and pass along any updates to this story. Reporting live tonight in Muse, I'm Kara Sapida, Channel 11 News. What would you like? Jason Burley has been running this Lake Ozark bar for almost two years. We're out tonight. A project that gives a nod to his military roots. Uh, this here is my father, served from 69 to 73 in the United States Navy during Vietnam. He too served in the military, and now his son. Sixth generation military. In this hallway of heroes around the corner from the bar, a reminder of what the Snafu Bar is really about. Mostly it's people that come in here, either customers or family of customers. Uh, we have some people's fathers, grandfathers, uncles, aunts. But these pictures aren't the ones getting Snafu Bar attention. It's this one. It just kind of upset me really bad. It put a bad taste in my mouth. And Taylor Sloan saw this makeshift doormat outside the door of Snafu over the weekend took a picture and posted it online, eventually getting into a heated argument with Burley on Facebook. It just really upsets me when I see people, you know, put uh, kind of a faux patriotism uh, guise on racism. It's not a race thing. A lot of people want to twist it around to be a race thing. They were placed the way they came out of the box. I ordered them together. We pulled them out of the box, taped them down. There was no in ill intent. Nothing, he says, but distaste for kneeling during the national anthem. A lot of us military folks take that personal to heart. I could line this whole sidewalk with NFL players that don't stand for the flag. And a lot of the patrons of his bar would walk on them just the same. And I commend them for what they're doing. As far as the right goes, uh, I fought for that right. The same thing that gives them that right gives me the right to place these out here. He insists the order was an accident, sending us this picture of the jerseys switched, hoping to switch the narrative so he can get back to what he started this bar for in the first place. Human being. That's the great part about being a human being. We're human beings. You know, we all, you know, I come from poverty. So for me, it's not a black and white thing. It's a rich and a poor thing. You know, these, the social injustices are towards the, towards the less fortunate. People who don't have money are the ones that are that are looked down upon, you know, because they're on government assistance. And I was on government assistance my whole life until I got, until I got drafted. I was on food stamps. I had seven dollars when I got drafted, so I know what it's like to be poor, and I know what it's like for everybody to treat you different, and treat you dumb, like you're dumb, and that you're uneducated. I know what that feels like. You know, there's no white privilege here. I, I think it's white. Pri I don't know what that even. What's white privilege? What? What does that even mean? You know, just because of the color of my skin, you think I get treated different? No. It's treated just the same. And Jim Trotter joins us now from Washington, D.C. on a Sunday like, uh, like none other, Jim, in uh, NFL history. And I guess my first question is, you know, where do we go from here? Uh, will we see these demonstrations perhaps evolve into something else off the field or, or some sort of organized effort to talk with the president or to some organization? From the people you're talking to around the league, what are you hearing? 
There's no definitive uh, knowledge on this. I mean, I asked Josh McCown, the Jets quarterback, what happens next? And he said, I don't know. He said, we've got to get together as players and talk about this. And he said, I'm okay continuing with what we've done as long as everybody is on board. We have to be unified. We can't have some players who don't want to do it and others who do. It's got to be unified. But when I went in the Raiders locker room tonight, I asked offensive lineman, Kaliche Osimile, I said, is this a one-week thing or will you go forward with it? He said, no, it's a one-week deal. He said it was done in response to something that was said. And he said, guys in the locker room who feel that they are role models wanted to take a stand against what the president had said. So I think it's going to differ for each team, and it's up to those players to decide how they want to handle this going forward. Thirteen months ago, Colin Kaepernick sat down during the anthem in a preseason game. New president, new season, and, uh, and here we are from this past weekend. I understand you spoke with uh, Colin Kaepernick's mother. What did she tell you? Yeah, I reached out to her after President Trump made his comments, and uh, she messaged me back. And let me read what she said so that I'm very clear and don't misquote her on this. She said, uh, Trump's remarks should have offended every person who believes in our Constitution and freedoms. As others have said, he refuses to call out Nazis and white supremacists, but gleefully calls out players who peacefully protest sons of bitches, or he calls them sons of bitches. I had hoped that Trump would prove not to be as bad as we all feared. Unfortunately, he is worse. Jim Trotter from Washington, D.C. Sports and politics rarely start off on good terms. They usually collide. And the peace they eventually make is never easily won, not until compassion and maturity make an appearance. What happened in the NFL Sunday was seen everywhere, not just inside the stadium. At the racetrack, two of NASCAR's biggest names watched and didn't seem to care for what they saw. Richard Childress, who was Dale Earnhardt's longtime team, team owner, said, It'll get you a ride on a Greyhound bus. Anybody that works for me should respect the country we live in. So many people gave their lives for it. This is America. And the legendary Richard Petty, even more stark in his comments, quote, Anybody that don't stand up for the anthem ought to be out of the country, period. What got them where they're at? The United States. And when asked... If a protester at Richard Petty Motorsports would be fired, he said, you're right. And some began to say the threats, or talk about the threats that were out. Or what would happen to me from some of our sick white brothers? And tonight, three brothers are locked up, accused of murdering this Fort Worth teenager. It is a crime that has left the friends of Xavier Olesko heartbroken. Now, many are sharing pictures like this one, saying, Rest in peace, Xavier. See you soon, brother. These three siblings are accused of shooting Xavier outside a home in White Settlement back 10 days ago. News 8's Sebastian Robertson tonight, live tonight at the jail where they're being held. Sebastian? Hi, John. Police calling the suspects the Garrison brothers, Ty, uh, Sean, and Kyle. They're being held here each on $200,000 bond. Their arrest gives the community a sigh of relief as they mourn the passing of a teenager. I've known Xavier about two years. Hunter Farrell found his friend, 18-year-old Xavier Holesco, left for dead in the driveway of his dad's white settlement home. He's relieved to know police have made an arrest. It was hard to sleep. I was very paranoid for, I don't know. And then 
finally heard last night. Just got my best night's of sleep. Police say Alesco knew 23-year-old Sean Garrison and that the two planned to meet up. Detectives believe that Garrison, alongside his two brothers, 17-year-old Kyle and 18-year-old Ty, planned to rob Alesco, ultimately shooting him in the chest and taking off. Sean Farrell was home at the time of the shooting. They're trying to walk me around the tape, and I see both of my sons, and then I'm like, okay, where's, where's Xavier? And that's when uh, they turn around, I'm like, well, he's right there. And that, you know, that, that, that hits you. Wednesday, nine days after the fatal shot, police arrested the brothers, one from a home on Cherry Lane and two others from this apartment complex off Emerald Crest Drive. Arrest made just a few miles from the Farrell home where Alesco was living at the time. It is a, a, a big sigh of relief to know that, okay, you know, maybe we got, maybe there can be some justice for Xavier. I just hope they get justice. What the hook? And I hope, I hope it fix a lot, fixes a, a lot of people. A lot of people were broken by this. Friends say Alesco played football for Brewer High School and was excited to graduate. They say they'll always remember his sense of humor and his smile. All reminders of a life taken too soon. All three suspects remain here in jail. All three are waiting arraignment and are charged with capital murder. Police say more arrests may come. In White Settlement, Sebastian Robertson, Channel 8 News. Thank you. Canada. We should move to Canada. My kids need some place to go. I need some place to go. I need to grow old in my mother's house with my children. My mother lived in this house for 43 years and she died in this house um, last year. What I plan to do is fight for my mother's home. Well, it doesn't seem right that Elaine Kane should have to fight for her mother's home, but as a black resident of North Preston, Nova Scotia, she is far from alone in facing a deeply frustrating situation. The land in question has been in her family for 200 years, but as with many of her neighbours, her family does not hold title to it. That means they cannot legally pass it down through generations and they cannot sell it. It is a problem that dates back to the 1700s and 1800s when white settlers were given title to the land but African Nova Scotians were not. And it means that many in the community are effectively squatters on their own land. This week, the United Nations addressed this ongoing situation. The UN Human Rights Council is urging the governments of Canada and Nova Scotia to do more in the effort to secure land titles for African Nova Scotians. Yesterday, Nova Scotia announced that it would spend $2.7 million over two years to do just that. Tony Ince is the Minister of African Nova Scotian Affairs. African Nova Scotians have suffered more than anyone else in Nova Scotia great indignities and injustices with respect to land. As an African Nova Scotian, I understand what land means to our people. I can only imagine the frustrations you have felt. Today's announcement is one important step on our journey. There's more work to be done, but we are on the right path. Well, Dwight Adams is one of the founding members of the North Preston Land Recovery Initiative. That is a community group that has been fighting the Nova Scotia government to solve this land title problem. Dwight Adams joins us from our Halifax studio. Hello. Hello. How are you this morning? Well, I'm curious to know what you're thinking. What was your reaction to the Nova Scotia government's announcement yesterday? Well, it was a bit of a shock to me, actually, because, um, well, not I should say not a shock to me. Um, where we've been uh, battling with the uh, government over these issues for quite some time now. 
Um, it was a bit of um, a shock that they've uh, actually reacted the way they did and as quickly as they did after the report came out. Um, I'm quite sure that it was because of the uh, the pressure that was put on them through the United Nations report, and I think this uh, was the reason that the action was taken so uh, quickly. How long have you been fighting for this? Uh, we've been in the, well, we've been in the trenches for the for the seniors of our community now for the last uh, four years or so, uh, if not more, a little more now. Uh, but uh, this battle's been going on obviously for quite some time. There's been um, small uh, organizations within the community uh, that go all the way back to the 60s that we know of that actually have put uh, paperwork forward and requests forward, and even before that in the earlier uh, 1900s where uh, we have actually, as a people, gone to the government to uh, ask about these issues. Well, and I should say that we did ask uh, the Minister of African Nova Scotian Affairs, Tony Ince, to tell us more about these decisions and why they've been delayed, uh, but he declined to speak to us. Um, why? So tell us, why are there so many people in your community who do not have legal title to their property? Well, I mean, the actual reasoning is, uh, is, is what we would understand to be is that we were just actually pushed to the wayside on how the processes work to get things to happen. Um, the other issue is the fact that... Uh, well, we're talking 50, 60, 70 years back. We can go as far back as that, our grandparents and our great-grandparents. Uh, without them understanding these processes that were put in place with these acts, we'll go back to 1963 when that act was put into place. Uh, those families coming up during that time, a lot of them didn't have an understanding of how the paperwork and the processes worked to get this done. The The bottom line is that we should have been uh, given these titles uh, at the beginning of time, when we have our property, we've paid our taxes, uh, we were productive citizens, and here we are today, still behind the eight ball, so to speak, uh, without any uh, any uh, furtherance and assistance until today. And and so this funding that's been announced um, affects um, a number of communities, uh, yours, North Preston, but also East Preston, Cherry Brook, um, and Lincolnville and Sunnyville and Guysborough County. Like, there's, so there's whole pockets where, where people don't have title. Am I right? That's absolutely true. There's and, about 13 communities that are more than likely affected by the same issue. So, so what happens when somebody wants to sell their property? What have they done now, since now? Like, what, what do they do? Well, uh, it's uh, ironic that um, you, they, they really don't have um, a foot to stand on. Because uh, what takes place now is uh, you, you try to pass it on and you run into stumbling blocks whereby the government will say, well, I'm sorry, but you don't own this land. You can't pass it on if you try to build. I'm sorry, when you get a permit, I'm sorry, you can't build. You don't own that land. Or if you uh, try to do any kind of um, uh, alterations to your home for permits, you go, you go about the processes. I'm sorry, you can't. You don't own that land. So these issues... Uh, have been going on for a while. We, uh, in some cases, more than likely uh, probably ignored some of that and did what we had to do uh, back in the day, and nobody really paid much attention to us. So it just goes to show that they haven't really paid attention to a whole lot. Uh, uh, But the paperwork and the processes that were in place we're always just pushed to the side. So the whole uh, the process is, is, is flawed. Uh, you've got a family connection on this. Your wife's family's been fighting this too. Have yeah, they not? that's correct. Yep. And, and what's that been like? 
Oh, it's been very frustrating. Um, there's other issues. Uh, once you go through the proper processing, uh, you get your paperwork in place, you go and get your uh, surveys done at about $10,000 per family or per unit. Um, then you go and you get your documentation done through your lawyers. Uh, all the paperwork is signed, I's are dotted and the T's are crossed. And lo and behold, there's a family member that could come out of the woodwork that also have claim to a portion of the properties or the lands within the family, and then there's a dispute. So with those types of issues, now your application goes back in the pile, you're forgotten about, and the process starts again, and about 5, 10, 15 years later, you're at it once again. Um, and uh, there's a real cost to that. There's also an emotional cost for not being able to actually the, have that ownership that can be taken away from you then. Oh, it's absolutely. It's, it, it's appalling. Like... Uh, it, uh, Elaine uh, elated to it uh, earlier in the uh, interview, uh, and she uh, mentioned that it's uh, it's terrible that you can't live in your grandparents' or your parents' home to be able to bring your grandchildren up to nanny's home and, uh, you know, allow them to thrive in their own uh, community. And once you've spent all these years in the community uh, and you're a part of something, and all of a sudden the government tells you at the end of the at the end of your days that, oh, well, you know, die without uh, giving up your property. That would be pretty uh, hurtful to anybody. So um, uh, this has taken so long to get to a point where the government says we want to fix this. What role does racism, discrimination play in this equation? It's, it's so deeply rooted. Uh, if you read the United Nations recommendations, that whole entire report has a, a, a numerous uh, issues it's a, it's a deep, deep systemic racism that's been uh, involved in Halifax, Nova Scotia for as long as I can remember. I'm in my 50s. Um, I heard it through my parents, my grandparents and my great-grandparents, and some of those elders that are still alive today well into their 80s and 90s and actually 100. And the stories that we hear from them, it's appalling. Uh, it's it's embarrassing. It's ridiculous. It's 2017, and yet here we are today, sitting down talking about the systemic racism of uh, of uh, a nation that is, to me, an amazing nation. And it's just it's it's embarrassing and it's hurtful. Dwight Adams, thank you for um, bringing us up to date on this. You're welcome. Dwight Adams, one of the founding members of the North Preston Land Recovery Initiative. He's in our Halifax studio. Isaac Saney is a professor in the Department of History at Dalhousie University, where he created and teaches that institution's first course about the black experience in Nova Scotia. He is in Halifax, joining us from there. Hello. Hi. Thank you. I I, want to pick up on this um, because we are looking at, like, like this started in the 1700s. Give us the history here. Well, you know, Nova Scotia and Canada has a history of enslavement, uh, so I think that needs to be stressed. But we have the first um, waves of people uh, who are free, or at least legally free, who are not enslaved, coming in the 1780s. Um, the Black Loyalists, uh, being made famous uh, by Lawrence Hill's book. And then after the War of 1812, we have another major migration in terms of number of uh, people, uh, another group called the Black Refugees who come after the War of 1812. They were promised land equ- and equality and economic security. 
authority. But what they were given, even um, they were not granted land, they were given tickets or license of occupation. That's where people could stay, but they were not given title to that land. And I think it's important to understand that when the black loyalists were coming in the 1780s and the next major wave of the black refugees coming after the War of 1812, they were seen by the Nova Scotia colonial authorities, these are government officials, as very important sources of labor for building the infrastructure of this province. So I think it's very possible when one reads through the records that they wanted to ensure that the black community didn't become economically independent, economically viable by having a secure land base so they could be used as cheap labor. Uh, These land claim issues have been things that have been taken up, a uh, question of giving title to land, from the, from the um, 19th century. You can go into the archives, you can find petitions uh, from various residents in these various communities asking for title to their land. And what's interesting as well is when the 1963 Land Clarification Act is introduced in Nova Scotia, it's introduced at the same time that we have the dispossession of Africville. So the black community is extremely well aware that, um, that in these various communities, especially in North Preston, that their, their connection to the land is very tenuous in the sense that even though they are taxpayers, they have not been given title to the land. And with the experience of Africville and another community in Dartmouth, Creighton Avenue, and even in Hogan's Alley in Vancouver, that any time the state can intervene and using this precarious legal position of the community in regards to the land, seize and expropriate that land. Okay, and i just clarify, you said 1963 Land Clarification Act? Like yes. Modern times, in other words. Modern yeah, times. So it's, it was perpetuated. So can, who does own that land. Well, it's clear, I mean, morally, it's the people who have been on that land for generations and decades. Um, the issue of who owns the land is stuff perhaps that will be decided in you know, people in terms right. of the legal system. No, but I mean, like, does the government of Nova Scotia say that's our land or they just say that, like, like or that's the big thing that's kind of like limbo? That's like a it. big thing that's left in limbo. Okay. And so on. But let's be clear that um, one of the concerns is that when the black community, and I should have stressed this, when they were settled, either with the black um, loyalists who came and then the black refugees, they were placed on land that was not considered valuable. They were placed on marginal land. They were, they were set aside from the major centers. And so land that was not considered valuable yesterday suddenly becomes valuable as economic situations change, as, this, as the province expands. So suddenly land that was considered infertile of very little economic value suddenly becomes land that people want to develop. And so the communities are very, very concerned, having seen what happened to Africville uh, and also seeing the gentrification that has unfolded across, across the North End. So people want to preserve this land that's been in generations, pass it on to their families. And of course, we know land is a very important source of economic, uh, uh, for economic investment and of the economic viability of a community. Context of white supremacy. Gusty Renegade in for another broadcast, hopefully to share constructive information on the system of white supremacy. Today's date, Saturday, September 30th, 2017. So I have been told this is our weekly compensatory call in. Dial in if you have thoughts, counter racist suggestions, uh, if you have commentary you want to add uh, based on any of the news clips that we heard or any other things that happened over the last week or so. Dial in the number 641-715-3640. The code 564-943-POUND. Press star 6 if you would like to participate. Number again, 641 715 
four zero. The code five six four nine four three pound. Press star six if you would like to participate. A couple quick things uh, get in before we get to callers. Uh, first, we are listener supported counter racist radio invest if you think the program is constructive uh, you can visit my blog racism hyphen notes dot blogspot dot com racism hyphen notes dot blogspot dot com paypal button is in the top right corner uh, if you're not into paypal drop us an email we will get you a physical mailing address uh, huge thanks to all the folks uh, who have supported invested nearly a decade. Uh, you can also support us uh, at my wish list at Amazon.com. It is under Gus T. Renegade. Thanks for the folks who have nabbed items uh, from our list over the years as well. I hope the program has been, continues to be worthy of your time and energy. That's it. Uh, a couple quick things that I wanted to get to for this week. Uh, the infamous commentary that Donald Trump gave uh, last Friday in Huntsville, Alabama, his cursing and what have you, his little stump performance uh, for politician, white politician who ended up losing his race. I thought one important tidbit from that whole performance, that event cur occurred at the Vaughn Braun Civic Center in Huntsville, Alabama. And I saw that name and I said, Von Braun, that sounds like a German name. Why would there be a German civic center in Huntsville, Alabama? So I go, I research, uh, who is this facility named after? A little information on Werner Von Braun. Hiring Nazis dedicated, excuse me, hiring dedicated Nazis was without precedent, entirely unprincipled and inherently dangerous, not just because, as Undersecretary of War Robert Patterson stated when debating if he should approve paperclip, these men are enemies, but because it was counter to democratic ideals. The men profiled in this book were nine nominal Nazis, eight of the 21 Otto Ambrose, Theodore Benzinger, Kurt Blum, Walter Dornberger, Siegfried Kimney, Kimner, Walter Schreiber, Walter Schieber, and Werner von Braun, each at some point worked side by side with Adolf Hitler, Heinrich Himmler, or Hermann Goring during the war. It goes on. This is from Annie Jacobson's book, Operation Paperclip. Very interesting book. And this is a relatively new book. Came out in 2014. But uh, Werner von Braun was one of the Nazis who was hired, brought over after World War II. Uh, and he worked with the Nazi space program uh, and helped them get their rockets and what have you uh, together. Uh, yeah, if there, anyone saw, I guess, hidden figures and what have you, I think some of those facilities were in Alabama. He might have been in that area practicing racism against some of the black people in the area. But that is the Civic Center uh, that is named uh, after Mr. 
von Braun. That is where President Trump delivered his remarks last Friday. Reading is more important than watching television and Dr. Welsing would for sure encourage study what happened in Germany. Uh, in that vein, we did have a sound clip as well with uh, the German election, uh, Prime Minister Angela Merkel. Uh, she was reelected. I think she won Time Magazine's Person of the Year for 2016, unless my memory is bad. But uh, they also had it's what they called the, the surge in the far right parties. <laughs> These folks who are upset with immigration and what's happening uh, in Germany. I know Dr. Welsing would be paying attention to that uh, and encouraging other black people to pay attention to that. As she stated many times, this is not uh, an area of racism. White supremacy is not a problem that is isolated to one part of the planet. It is a local, national, global system. Uh, we should understand it as such. Uh, definitely had to make sure we included that clip uh, for what's happening in Germany this week. Dr. Welsing. Uh, also, the cows, we should have a uh, broadcast uh, coming up, I believe, on Wednesday, October 4th. I uh, have to confirm the date and time, but all that information will be posted. Uh, Walter Beach should be a guest on the program. Walter Beach III, uh, he wrote the book, Consider This. Uh, Walter Beach played with the great Jim Brown. They actually won a championship together uh, when they played for the Cleveland Browns. Uh, for folks who do not know who Walter Beach is, this is a quick sound clip. This is Walter Beach, yeah, by the way. This, this is me. As an African black man, my hypocrisy manifests as silent rage. I was nine years old, man. My mother had to put a dress on me, get me out of Mounds, Illinois, so I wouldn't be lynched. I was nine years old. I was 32 years old playing professional football with the Cleveland Browns, and the owner told me I couldn't read a book. See, that's my experience. The book that he was forbidden to read Elijah Muhammad's message to the black man. Uh, he almost got kicked off the team uh, for reading that book. Uh, Jim Brown had to intervene to get him back on the team. But uh, reading is more important than watching television. But yeah, Walter Beach, real uh, excited to have him uh, on the broadcast. I've been trying to get him on the program for about more than a year uh, like I said, when I heard him talking publicly and referencing Mr. Fuller and using the term white supremacy publicly when he's doing uh, interviews and what have you and his views, uh, he was talking last year when Muhammad Ali transitioned. Uh, he was talking about a lot of the hypocrisy that he saw these white people crying and running around. And we love Ali. He inspired us so. And wait a minute. Where were you at? You know, when. I, Jim Brown, and us other black people were supporting him. Where were you then? Uh, since you're so inspired uh, by Ali. But yeah, really excited to have him on the program. And also, I think, very important with regards to counter-racism, uh, just persevering. That is, you know, what it is going to take uh, sometimes uh, for certain guests. It's taken a lot of effort. Uh, we talked about that before. I think Cynthia McKinney, it took almost a year before we got her on the program the first time uh, with Walter Beach. Same thing. Took uh, a lot of, of time and working, but persevere. Uh, that is very important. Uh, it is not going to be easy, uh, the effort to replace white supremacy with justice. Uh, some of the other things. Uh, all of the hubbub 
uh, that stood out with the NFL protests over the past week. Uh, I do not, uh, I did not think very much of that was uh, in any way really connected to uh, racism, white supremacy in terms of, or from the perspective, yes, I think that this means more non-white people, the kneeling athletes themselves and or people seeing this, that this is going to get more non-white people to become aware or to think accurately, critically about racism, white supremacy. No, I don't think so. Uh, That would be my no, because uh, it just seems like this is not increasingly is less and less connected to racism, at least what I've seen uh, from the players and what have you. I have appreciated uh, some of the responses that white people have made uh, to all of this. I played a few in the sound clips, the football player uh, for the Denver Broncos, Derek Wolf. He was the one that was talking about he didn't know what white privilege was. That was very spontaneous because uh, I hadn't I hadn't heard anyone uh, who was taking a knee put that match that with the term white privilege. Uh, it just seemed like they they caught him on a moment where he was ready to ramble and let out some of his feelings uh, about all this. He had also uh, submitted a written statement, Derek Wolf, uh, saying that if you don't like this country, you should leave. Uh that has been, you know, constructive and what have you. But on whole, I think this is just another illustration of white people doing a phenomenal job, a phenomenal job and being able to uh, commodify mainstream uh, legitimate efforts that black people, non-white people make to replace white supremacy, to take that and, as Mr. Fuller might say, steer that in a completely different direction, completely different focus, completely different terms. They're great, phenomenal uh, at that sort of thing. Uh, I did also the the volunteer white firefighter, fight, uh, volunteer white fire chief, Uh, He was allowed to resign, still didn't get fired. White people don't get fired. I'm sure he'll be in a fire department somewhere near one of us shortly. But he had a nigger list. I would like to know, and I think even some of our listeners said that would be my question. Who else is on your nigger list and why? What did they do? (laughs) And I, I I thought it was even more hilarious that he concluded that coach Tomlin black male, that it was his fault. He is the person that is most to blame for the Steelers not coming out for the anthem. Cause they, they were one of the teams that didn't come out at all. They just stayed in the locker room uh, as though he's the owner of the franchise, as though some white person didn't have the final say so about, you know, whether the players were going to go outside or not. He just the uh, former fire chief Smith. Uh, he just concluded that it was the niggers fault no good nigger let's see uh last thing they had that report recognizing the 60 year anniversary of the little rock nine that should be a cowbell every time the little rock nine is mentioned um they had that clip and that is one thing if anyone who's been a listener to the cows for a period of time reading is more important than watching television we spent about three months in the book club reading about the Little Rock Nine. We went, uh, we read uh, Warriors Don't Cry, Melba Patilla Beals. She was one of the Little Rock Nine. And we read Elizabeth and Hazel by David Margolik. He is a suspected race soldier. We, we read them consecutively and 
wow, uh, I don't think you could read those two books and come, or at least I did not. And I don't recall too many of the folks who participated in those two book sessions. Uh, I don't recall there being too many moments where you could say, wow, this was great. We made some, we made some progress and wow, things. I mean, it was terrorism uh, through and through, and I am not sure that it was worth it. And it even sounds like if uh, my memory is correct, Elizabeth Eckford, uh, she's one of the two main subjects of Elizabeth and Hazel. Uh, Elizabeth Eckford didn't seem from that book to, to have a firm conclusion about whether or not it was all worth it for the quote-unquote privilege of sitting next to a white student. Anywho, uh, if you have commentary, the number again, 641-715-3640 and the code 564-943-POUND. Press star 6 if you would like to participate. If you could take about five minutes to share your comments, observations, that would be grand. Uh, that way, everybody will have an opportunity to share. Uh, if you have additional comments or questions or anything you want to get in, just wait till everybody gets to share at least once, and then we, sh we should have time for you to add any uh, extra commentary. Uh, also, for this program exclusively, if we could not use metaphors, uh, it's been my experience or my conclusion, whites race soldiers, one of the prime ways that they practice white supremacy, they will use metaphors. This is, we're talking master deceivers. They will use metaphors, comparisons, analogies. Uh, they will contrast two entities that are not equivalent, similar at all. They will do this on a regular basis. This causes confusion. Non-white people, victims of racism, we have been exposed to this treachery for a long time and many of us we are still learning gusty renegade included as such often we are talking about things and we have not come to a conclusion so we will employ a metaphor to express our thoughts hoping that it accurately conveys what we're thinking often it does not it just adds to the confusion if we could be direct explicit about what it is that we would like to say that would be great if you need more time to get clarity that's great just take more time uh, but no metaphors uh, for the broadcast I will prompt about that thank you kindly if you know you're in a noisy environment if you could use your mute button that would be appreciated uh, preserves the audio quality uh, you can just unmute when you're ready to speak and then uh, mute yourself again uh, that way we don't have a whole lot of you know background noise in the broadcast. Uh, that said, uh, folks have commentary you would like to share. If you have a hand up, uh, line should, or at least the first few folks who dialed in with a hand up, line should be open. Proceed. Yes, may I be heard? Yes, sir. Greetings, okay. guys, to the rest of the callers. I just wanted to respond to one of the audio clips that was, that was basically discussing the Little Rock Nine incident in Arkansas. And I was pretty astounded when I heard that eight of the nine black victims involved with that incident are going to the school that was also involved with that incident to, to just speak with the former students, as also the former president, Bill Clinton, is going to be there as well. I was astounded by that because I feel like, I feel like these students are going to realize 
what happened, what truthfully happened back in 1957 and how this school was basically built from then on forward. I honestly feel like the school hasn't even mentioned this incident just because just based on my assumptions of Arkansas, that being in either the Midwest or the South, I can't really think right now, but um, they don't really discuss that type of stuff and how they don't really discuss black justice, I would say, basically in the South or the Midwest, basically anywhere where there's white supremacy, and that's pretty much everywhere. And, yeah, I was that's why I was astounded by it. But I would also like to talk about the speech that Donald Trump made uh, about the sports about the sports players who are quote unquote disrespecting the American flag. Um just by kneeling just by kneeling down on the floor, you know, just kneeling down on the field. Just they he's basically saying that he wants them fired for disrespecting the nation and whatnot. And how I feel about it I would say that's just that's just plain stupid. I mean I say that because it's just it's just a national anthem that just defines the United States as who they are, what they represent, how they deal with things in this country. It shouldn't hold that much respect to where you have to stand up on your tippy toes and just place your hand on your heart that beats and just have to do all this stuff when you can just kneel down and just still take notice of it. I would say, but I mean, my views are different from the president's and my views won't be regarded as much as the president's, but these are my views and this is how I feel about this incident. I would do the same thing if I were interested in sports, but unfortunately I'm not interested and I really avoid sports because I know it it causes problems basically, whether it's betting on which team's going to win. It's just Appreciate that. Our young scholar in the Bay Area. Uh, I did want to say really quick uh, about the always grand to hear young black people who are not that interested in professional sports. Uh, But with regards to the Little Rock Nine in Arkansas, uh, I think they do talk about that incident a lot because it sparks such national attention. But in my view, and, and folks, if people recall from the book, club uh the two books that i previously mentioned they'll do exactly what you heard bill clinton will be invited to speak they'll invite the little rock nine uh it's eight of them that are still living but they'll invite bill clinton will be the headliner uh, to come in and give a few words on racial progress and reconciliation they'll bring it up but they just won't be accurate uh when they talk about uh racism white supremacy and this incident uh the integration of uh central high school in in little rock uh, other folks who dialed in. Oh, and I did forget. I had uh, a question. If we have black uh, parents, because I think this is serious and this has come up before, that situation in Utah where this race soldier terrorized a young uh, black child, seven-year-old, I think it was, and his father uh, used a stun gun on the father. If we have parents, uh, do you have a code if an adult because uh, I suspect your code would be different if it was a, a little racist child had done something to your uh, offspring. But if an adult 
a racist adult, male or female, uh, is verbally accosting your child, what is your code? And I wanted to ask that because that situation, uh, it's already serious. Your seven-year-old is being uh, verbally assaulted, terrorized. Then this race soldier pulls out a stun gun and stuns him in the neck. He could have killed uh, this child's father, killed him right in front of him easily. Lots of people die from those stun guns every year. Uh, so what is your code? I just want to uh, hear if there are parents. I don't have children. I uh, know we do have folks, uh, mothers and fathers who listen to the program. So that would be grand. You can share that as we move forward with the broadcast. Uh, if you are a black parent, please don't spectate because uh, this is one that you can answer. And if you don't have a code, that's fine, too. That lets us know that you are still learning and we all have things that we're still working on. Uh, other folks who dialed in with a hand up, uh, proceed. Hey, can, can I be heard? Yes, sir. Yes, I, I'm a black parent, and I currently do not have a code for if I see that my uh, my daughter, I have a four-year-old daughter, and if I see her being attacked by a police officer, I don't know what I would do. I would probably attack the police officer, and I'd probably be serving a, a pretty uh, long fine in prison in that, in that regard. Um, the first things I want to talk about was uh, the military. I am in the military. I'm in Washington. And um, as far as even though I'm in the military, everything that you, you speak about as far as uh, workplace racism definitely applies in the military. And as far as um, even in my uniform, even in the workplace, we, we encounter racism on an everyday basis. Um, and I expect it in the military and I pretty much, uh, I pretty much see it coming. And even though his response, he, he said what he said, but I definitely don't uh, let my guard down. Also, I want to speak and also being, um, in the Washington area, I'm not too far from uh, Portland, Oregon. Um, the pit and also the pit bull, um, attacking the man and saying sick him, um, as definitely, that's definitely uh, expected. That's what white people do. Um, definitely don't want to let your guard down there either, especially being the fact that there's not that many black people there in the first place. So white people aren't used to dealing with black people on, on a regular basis. And yeah, I just, I definitely don't, I definitely, when I'm traveling through Portland, I definitely don't stop through that area at all. Um, also, uh, when in your um, clips you were talking about the fire chief um, and his re and his response to uh, Mike Tomlin, the uh, Steelers coach, and calling him a no good nigger, and I would pay a large sum of money to know who his good niggers are and who his bad niggers are, <laughs> and that definitely falls under the uh, the category of uh, workplace racism as well. Um, also, let's see the snafu bar. Um, that one thing that you always say, uh, white people in alcohol are definitely lethal. Um, definitely. <laughs> I definitely watch my, uh, watch my environment whenever I'm around white people and, uh, definitely try to stay away by all means necessary. And even in a bar, just having Kaepernick, um, Colin Kaepernick and Marshawn Lynch is a Jersey on the floor for, for, uh, for walking mats. I think that's just the tackiest thing that you can do, and that's just what white people do by nature. And um, and the incident in uh, Fort Worth, Texas, um, and the, the 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 area, the suburb is called White Settlement. 
<laughs> and um, that definitely makes me think about uh, having the, the the caution of having white friends also, and there's no such thing as having a white friend. Um, definitely, everything that happens definitely makes me refer to uh, Neely Fuller. And as long as we're living under a system of white supremacy, there is no such thing as white friends. And also, and the last thing, um, what you referred to was uh, Bill Clinton and how um, Bill Clinton also, not to mention Bill Clinton also had also had a speaking part in Muhammad Ali's death as well. So it's funny how Bill Clinton's also with the Arkansas Nine and he's with Muhammad Ali's um, uh, what do you call it, uh, the funeral speech. And um, he's just everywhere, and he definitely knows how to uh, have his fingers in everything. <laughs> and um, that's pretty much all I have to say. And uh, I'll go ahead and uh, meet my line. Indeed. Uh, I did <clears throat> want to say the, the question for parents, uh, it wasn't a if a police officer or enforcement officer is verbally accosting your child. It was just a race soldier, no badge, uh, just a regular white citizen, male or female, uh, is verbally uh, accosting your child, do you have a codified response to uh, how you would you know, handle that sort of situation? Just make sure, ask the question clearly. Uh, other folks who had a hand up, uh, if you had a uh, commentary that you wanted to share, mine should be open, proceed. Can I be heard? Yes, sir. Good evening, Gus. Cal family. This is um, Ramon from Colorado Springs, 719. Uh, I'm a parent, and not directly, but through an incident with my brother, who had a white person actually attacked him when we were young children. I learned from my mother, my codification would be, and I think I can safely say, I would feel as though it warrants some type of man posture to let that person understand that if you continue with your behavior, I'm not calling the police. That would be my codification on that situation. <clears throat> I did want to do an update on uh, the Colorado Springs situation about the uh, racial slurs in the cadet dorm or over here at the Air Force Academy. Something that didn't get reported, or I don't know if it got updated and people caught it, but immediately, actually after that, they had a active shooter call in in to 911 from the cadet. Within minutes after reporting this on the, our local news, one of the Air Force Academy officials came on and said, there's an incident, but not an active shooter incident. This leads me to think that, they, well, this is my thing. I'm wondering if there's a cover-up because my mind started thinking, and I just live a few blocks down the road from Maybe it had been someone taking action into their hands, or maybe the race soldiers that put it up there might have wanted to make make good on their their views. 
the situation with the woman in Utah getting that the house and you know relocation just sounds so much like a a get out moment for me. And that's all I had to say. Thank you for letting me share my that for sure is a metaphor. Uh, anything that where someone has referenced a, a film is most likely going to be a metaphor. Uh, Got to make sure I get those in since that was a movie that I loathed uh, and thought that I would from the beginning. Uh, other folks that we've not heard from at all, uh, if you have commentary, uh, line should be open. Proceed. May I proceed? Yes, sir. Uh, greetings to the host and the callers, heavily victimized from Kansas City, Missouri. I did want to respond to your question. Um, I had some other comments, but I thought it was appropriate, the, uh, the question that was asked regarding parents. Um, yesterday, or I'm sorry, Thursday, um, I became father. Um, and we had a it was very very powerful to all people uh, victims of racism who are attempting to raise families or attempting to um, be spouses in relationships i i do um i don't think you should be dissuaded from um, from having offspring found to this problem um, but I have two girls already twins so this this young male is is definitely um, a lot for me to think about, but directly related to your question uh, regarding what would I do, um, I will answer with a very brief uh, something that happened regarding, it happened to be race soldiers, um, enforcement officials that um, were in the position to um, startle my, my children and my reaction to um, putting my girls to sleep a couple of ago. Um, there was some gunfire in the neighborhood that I live in, which is, is rather common. And um, I took the girls immediately upstairs because I believed that the gunfire was close. And I grabbed um, an arm, a firearm, and um, the girls just went to sleep. And I went downstairs to investigate. I heard some noise out back. And I have made a personal, um, a part of my personal code is that if anybody is involved in a shooting or a shooting around my home, um, that I will return fire. Um, I went outside looking for the person who was shooting, and I happened to see a car that was wrecked in my backyard. Um, there was a woman standing over a man um, to give an image. It was um, uh, there was a woman standing over a man, and he was bleeding in the car that had crashed in my backyard. She was screaming on the phone, saying he's dying, he's bleeding. The young man, um, we attempted to give him medical aid. I went and grabbed my trauma kit. My neighbors also came out. A couple of neighbors came and attempted to stop the bleeding. Died in my backyard. Um, the, the young was attempting to help him, uh, who was in the car with him, did not know it at the time. She had been shot in the leg as well. She was in uh, When I went to the kit, though, going back a little bit here, after seeing the, the um, Thing of this, this in my backyard, but uh, immediately after what
Uh, sir, are you still there? Okay, seems like your uh, line might be breaking up a little bit. Um, yeah, I was hearing you clearly for the first few minutes or so, but then it, it seems like there's a little distortion. Is it better now? Uh, so far, if you want to proceed. Yes, thank you. Um, one of the officers noticed that I had a holster and a firearm and proceeded to point me out across the street. There was about four officers immediately on the scene, two squad cars. And they asked, you know, whose house is it? And one of them saw that I had a gun, and they came and they wrangled the gun off of me. Um, of course, trying to be as careful as possible with these suspected race soldiers, because, you know, I, I do have a loaded weapon in there grabbing me, which is not the first time I've been disarmed at my own home. But um, they they went into my house, and um, I immediately told them, look, my, my girl's upstairs. Like, we're, we're good, and we're calm. But if you want if you want problems, I mean, you got my gun, that's cool. But don't wake my girls up. Don't scare my girls. Don't walk into my girls' room. Because at that point, I, I felt like I was going to lose control. Now, it probably didn't help that I keep firearms discreetly hidden around my house. And I contemplated some really, really bad thoughts. But I was thinking, like, what would I do if they ignored me? And they ran upstairs, guns in hand, because they were looking for the suspect. Um, and my home was this scene, and scare my girls, what would my reaction be? Um, I had not necessarily satisfied a code for how I would react, but at that particular moment, um, you know, unfortunately, uh, over, emotion likely would have overcome, um, but I was fortunate. The, the officers listened to me, and, and I led them upstairs. They let me kind of break through them. Uh, I wasn't going to let them just run upstairs in, in my house and scare these girls with guns. And they, they didn't respond, I guess, too dramatically. And, um, but we, we, we kept, I was able to keep my composure. Um, the long story short, um, I was acquitted. I was actually held as a suspect in the murder for three hours because I did have a firearm on the scene of a murder. My cameras helped to acquit me of those. And the homicide detective um, allowed me to stay home and not have to go downtown. But I would say this regarding the, the, people and their and their children non-white victims it, it's a real good idea to have a code because if you if you you're not even contemplating what you would do if your children was attacked by a regular suspected race soldier or a law enforcement official suspected race soldier you're asking for trouble in that moment most non-white specifically black people would be emotional we have proven ourselves to be that way but i would i would suggest that that question you ask be pondered by individuals who are tempted parents um, so that we don't uh, end up uh, losing our lives be, be, be behind. And maybe that's, maybe that's what we feel is appropriate. But if, if some of us don't think that that's the appropriate time to take that action, we, we really want to think it through. Thank you. I'll take my call offline. Much obliged. Uh, appreciate that. Uh, and also, I guess I would, would add in uh, just hearing that response from what the situation that happened in Utah where this uh, father said, you know, this suspected, or I can't even say suspected, this race soldier uh, verbally terrorized his child, a seven-year-old. And then when he went to confront the race soldier, uh, the beast tased him in the neck. Uh, and apparently this happened in front of his son. I think uh, the father said that while he was on the ground, literally stunned, uh, that he could just hear his, his child uh, and shouting. And I mean, obviously, in, in the hysterics seeing a parent uh, be attacked like that. Uh, keep that in mind as well. Uh, whatever response you take, your response might happen in front of your child. Uh, and I mean, I, 
I mean, you want to talk about PTSD. Imagine that seeing your uh, seeing your father or seeing a parent uh, be stunned in front of you. You don't know if they're if they're dead, if they got serious health problems. Uh, you're seven and you watch that happen in front of you and, and what that's going to do to you. I think he said that he would become anxious just seeing any white person who kind of resembled that enforcement official. Imagine what happens. You get stopped by an enforcement official where he was cute. Sorry. He wasn't an enforcement official. This was just a, a white man with no badge who did all this. But I mean, just that's a lot to, uh, that is a lot to process. I'll leave it there. Other folks who have a hand up, uh, if you have commentary, if we haven't heard from you proceed. Other folks who had a hand up, uh, do we miss people? It seems like they're a bevy of hands. Can I be heard? Yes, sir. Greetings, everyone. I am excited that Walter Beach is coming on the program. I mean, uh, ever since I found out about him, he is one of my uh, favorite uh, professional athletes. Uh, primarily because of his uh, less confused understanding and behavior against the system of racism, white supremacy, uh, excuse me, against the system of racism, white supremacy, uh, back when he was playing. Uh, he actually uh, lost the job. Uh, playing for the Boston Patriots, they were called at the time, uh, uh, because of his self-respect. Uh, and be that's when he came to the Cleveland Browns, after the fact. Uh, also, from the standpoint of, I think, I think I don't know for sure, but you mentioned about the, uh, he was on that uh, airplane flight, the team was, and he was reading uh, Elijah Muhammad's book, and I think the owner approached him about reading the book, reading his book. I don't know how the owner found out about it. Uh, it was some white male, I think was the owner. And he basically chastised the, this white person uh, in saying that, uh, you know, that I have a right to read whatever literature I want to read. You know, and it's on the book. Uh, needless to say, uh, he didn't play in the NFL for a very, very long time. Uh uh, but uh, I'm excited about uh, him coming on your program, and I, I just can't miss that. Although I'm right in the middle of football season itself, I am not going to miss that program, <laughs> that particular program. Moving on, uh, the uh, white male uh, racist suspect, suspect Werner, he's also attributed to because uh, uh, in Germany he was like a child prodigy, quote-unquote, uh, experimenting with, with rockets, and he, I would guess, would be uh, targeted as inventing the first ICBM. It was called the uh, V-2 rocket. And in turn, as you mentioned, as far as historical-wise, uh, he was hired. He was hired without no, they gave him, a, they gave him basically a pass from, from not being a Nazi criminal war criminal. Uh, he was not effectively indicted uh, on uh, charges against quote-unquote humanity. 
and was allowed to come into this part of the world and and join uh, racist suspects in this part of the world. That's why all of those antiquated names and stuff that white people put to uh, what they're doing uh, is not accurate. Uh, whatever country, uh, the most accurate term to the country that they belong to is the country of white supremacy, racism, uh, as far as they're concerned, not anything called the United States of America or Germany or whatever. They're just names uh, uh, because if they decide they want to utilize someone for their best interest, they're going to do it. And he is exact. He's an example of it. Uh, he's well known for his his uh, also for his uh, 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 place with NASA. Also, uh, he all those different rockets that went to the moon and whatever basically comes from his uh, his uh, 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 mind. And uh, uh, yeah, that was my thoughts when I heard heard that name. But that's all I have to say. Uh, and if there's something else, if I get a chance, I'll add on more. Thank you. Appreciate that, retired firefighter. Uh, do we have other folks? Uh, if you have a hand up and we've not heard from you at all, if you have commentary, proceed. Hey, good evening. Can I be heard? Yes, sir. Uh, good evening. Uh, 2812 from Virginia. Um, hope everybody's having a good evening tonight. I had a, a couple of things I actually wanted to share. Um, some of it actually workplace racism as well. Um, uh, I was not able to, I just got in, but I was not able to hear the clips. Um, wasn't sure if you shared anything specifically on the um, the uh, Puerto Rico situation. Um, uh, obviously, um, it's pretty bad. Um, it's almost a disaster. Um, I have a, a friend um, who has family there and the latest report that I believe that she gave to me was that in the port of San Juan, there, as of Friday, I believe, there were 3 million containers of supplies and uh, packages to be distributed. And for some reason, uh, they were having an argument about how to get things distributed. And that's why I believe that there was a young lady who was on a couple stations talking about, and I know Donald Trump made a comment, but there was another young lady that um, actually spoke before he did that was on a couple stations yesterday and I'll get her name and I'll forward it to Gus, but she was talking about how the U S government or white people were disorganized in trying to figure out how these supplies were to be distributed and specifically not just getting supplies out to people uh, in the city of San Juan or to like the tourist areas, but to get the people to some of those uh, places in the mountains as well and that non-white people are just going to continue to suffer but when he gets on television or when white people blame the non-white people for the problem i just always remember what mr fuller says you know the people that are in charge are the most to blame and the whole structure and the way everything is organized in puerto rico is because of white people um today i had a very interesting i had to take some additional uh classes just to um stay sharp uh, or, you know, we have to do, I'm sure everyone, uh, if, if in your occupation, you have to do things for education. So we did something today's for C credit. Um, I'm in the mortgage business and being less confused 
sometimes is uh, it's when you start to hear things and I don't want to ramble, but one of the more interesting things is how when I was sitting in the same class five, six years ago, the way that I listen to things now is different. And today, the first 10 minutes of this CE class was about racism, white supremacy. And they were talking about what is redlining and how racists would use redlining to not allow black people to move into different areas. And then they started talking about um, one. Of, I, I did some circles and it said one of the principal arguments in support of Humda, which is what we were talking about, was that banks were earning profits from holding the deposits of minorities, a.k.a. black people, but limiting their access to mortgage credit. And I'm like, oh, that's another way that racist, <laughs> that they practice white supremacy. And then we got to the demographics. And basically what they were talking about demographics was now we're going to start to collect data a little bit differently when we're, and this is not just for the mortgage industry, but for different industries, um, collecting data differently on how we uh, classify people. And I just want to read this just so people can have an understanding. So in, in, in the place where it says applicant and you have ethnicity, um, and Mr. Fuller talks about this so much, but I think it's really important you have a classification of Hispanic, Mexican, Puerto Rican, Cuban. Then you have other Hispanic, other Latino, Dominican, Argentinian, Colombian, Nicaraguan. Then you have something that says you're not a Hispanic or Latino. Then you have an American Indian or an Alaskan Native. Then you have you can be an Asian or you can be an Asian Indian or you can be a Chinese person or it can be a Filipino or Japanese, or Korean, or Vietnamese, and it's on and on and on, and there might be 25 different classifications of people, and it's just confusing, and for us and just anybody, everyone that's sitting in the room, majority white people, and even they were sitting there saying, well, this is terrible, and I'm looking at them saying, white people are the ones that are causing this confusion. It's not black people that are doing all this classification. So I just shared that to share. And I know I, I was probably a little off topic, but, you know, these things are coming, all these classifications that Mr. Fuller and we have wise people that are talking about, this stuff is coming down the pipe and things are going to be a lot, uh, just going to get more and more confusing. And I just wanted to share that. And I apologize if I didn't uh, hear the clips a little bit earlier, but I just thought that was really important. And I'll mute my line. Thanks. Racial classification confusion. Uh, that is another very effective tactic of racists. Uh, I think coming down the pike, that might be another metaphor. Uh, other folks uh, who dialed in that we have not heard from at all. Uh, if you dialed in, have a hand up and you have commentary, proceed. Can I be heard? Yes, ma'am. Uh, yes, this is a caller from Florida. Um, I didn't get to hear um, uh, the beginning of the clips, but I was just calling in, I guess, to kind of check in with everybody because I've been uh, kind of moving around and stuff and had to get myself situated. So um just thought I'd drop in and say hello and 
that put. Grand, that's Princess, uh, one of our Florida listeners, uh, dialing in, investors. Good to hear from you. Uh, I'm sure you will have time if you want to give a word uh, before we uh, sign off. We have another hour or so in the broadcast, but good to hear from you. Uh, the number, uh, if folks are interested in dialing in, 641-715-3640 and the code 564-943-POUND. Press star six if you would like to participate. Uh, other folks that we've not heard from at all, if you have a hand up and we haven't heard from you, proceed. Did we nab everybody? Everybody who has a hand up uh, has spoken. Can I be heard? Can I be heard? I heard, uh, I think that's, might be Mr. Steele. There's a lot of uh, background noise uh, on that end. Hopefully uh, we can get him in a a quieter spot. Uh, The other caller who dialed in with a hand up, proceed. I heard two callers at once. I know one was uh, Mr. Steele. It seems like there might have been some background noise there. Uh, the other person that spoke up, uh, did you want to go ahead? We'll uh, we'll get Mr. Steele after after a moment. Wacky. I heard two people, and now neither one of them <laughs> speaking. Wild. Uh, the other folks, uh, if you have a hand up and you do not have a lot of uh, noise. Uh, in the background that you have to, to compete with to, to hear what you have to say. If you have a hand up and you have commentary you'd like to share, proceed. Can I be heard? Yes, sir. Oh, yes, thank you very much, sir. Greetings to guest the host, the listeners and callers. Uh, like I've seen the... I think that was the response, I guess, given by the uh, Air Force Academy, I guess, general, like the white guy, and like the language he was using. Um, I think that was the Young Turks. They were, I guess, trying to make him out, make him out to be somebody to be revered or uh, to have a lot of esteem for, but he wasn't really accurately addressing racism to me, um, especially since how it does look like it was steered and misdirected the kneeling protests, uh, especially when they are bringing up like so-called disrespecting the flag in the military and saying that such and such, you know, certain people died and this like this and that and um, and you got people who are in the military who are classified as black, they still have to face the dominance of racism. And people are talking about accepting diversity and tolerance and those, uh, those words, those key words, they keep in a cycle, they keep repeating them. So um, it just, once again, that causes a lot more confusion. And uh, there, there was, it was a story I had read where there was a girl who um, 
I guess like there was a discussion going on in her high school and I guess she had to like give a response or respond to the comments that was made in her classroom by I suspect I suspect these were white students. They were talking about I guess uh the protests. So um they didn't say what the students were saying, but this uh young black female was given a letter saying, you know, uh, go home or get out, you know, nigger or N-word or whatever. So that term is definitely nonstop. It's always used at a high frequency. Um, you know, uh, and it's worldwide too, I agree. Uh, local, national, global word. And and uh, this this topic, no one seems to be mentioning like, hey, you know, where... I guess, well, some people do say this. They'll say, you know, where do we go from now? Well, where do we go from here? And it, I don't know if people notice this pattern. It'll be the uh, the person who has the most power, the white person, asking a victim, you know, like, you know, what do we do? What's the solution? And they'll make it appear as though they are severely concerned, um, you know, about what to do about it. And they already know we are in a confused state of mind about how to understand the issue and how to speak on it. So uh, that pattern, I think, is going to be used once again. And one last thing, uh, the thing about Donald Trump and making it seem like he is the only person that we can, um, you know, call a racist or whatever. And he's still, not, in my opinion, he still is not being uh, like called a racist, and it's not changing from that. Like he's, people still don't want to, well, white people still don't want to call him that. And uh, you know the the media information, news stations and whatnot. So they're pretty much all uh, doing the same type of practice of practicing racism. And uh, that's all that I have right now. Thanks for allowing me to share. Indeed, that's a major part of the racist code. Not supposed to uh, indict other whites as racist, regardless of what they do, what they say. Uh, I feel like Donald Trump, I feel like he gets called racist a little bit more than what I'm accustomed to. And even with him, it's infrequent. Uh, most of the time they find some sort of, I don't think he's a racist. He's, you know, an oaf and all this other stuff. But I, I don't know. I don't know if he's a racist or not. Uh, we have other uh, other folks, and I think that pattern was still there this week in many of the clips uh, where I said I'm still looking for a term where they will try and make it seem that the racists are a very small number of whites. It's not all white people are racist. It's just uh, a few of them. Uh, just a club, one or two over here, and that's about it. Uh, I think you even heard uh, some of that in the clip from New Hampshire where the woman said, well, yeah, I think they're... I saw a few uh, skinheads, but uh, I don't. I, I've never even seen them hurt anybody. Like uh, I just, uh, yeah, I just don't know what you're talking about. That standard operating procedure, and from a white woman, no less. Uh, we have uh, other folks uh, have a hand up that we've not heard from at all. Can I, can I be heard? Yes, sir, Mr. Steele. Awesome. Um, hopefully the uh, the audio is. Uh is okay. Um, I just wanted to um, start off by um, 
I have um, three Ds that describe uh, the behavior of racist white supremacist um, suspects, confirmed, admitted, um, what have you. Um, it's uh, deny, deflect, and uh, distract. Uh, these are the things that they'll basically do. Um, oh, sorry. Deny, deflect, and downplay. Um, they'll go ahead and deflect to distract you from the point, but they'll try to downplay the number of um, suspected white supremacists that are operating or the presence of white supremacy. Um, that's what they'll do. And um, yeah, that's, I think what you were talking about is specifically just downplaying the whole situation. Um, when it comes to um, uh, the uh, suspected racists that are in charge of Facebook, um, it's uh, becoming more and more arbitrary um, what they are considering eligible for um, reporting and banning. I am having a little trouble myself trying to um, decipher any level of consistency um, with respect to what is uh, uh, what constitutes as a banned term. Um, I believe I was recently banned on one of my profiles for using the term uh, pink face racist. So uh, I guess maybe um, I was directly referring to skin color and um, calling people racist. I don't know. I thought that Facebook stopped banning people for um, calling uh, racist racist. And uh, uh, apparently uh, that might uh, be classified as some sort of harassment or bullying or something. So um, just, uh, I guess, try to remain codified when commenting on Facebook. Um, uh, and, you know, this is something that's really important because a lot of um, uh, victims of uh, white supremacy, that is uh, the only um, uh, medium with which they communicate with other victims is through Facebook. And I can just see so many safety issues that can arise from only having one profile um, and having that profile being banned. Um, yeah, that's just something that I, um, I'm very, very uh, concerned about. Um, but I have another profile. It's uh, Ken Steezy. It's another Ken Steezy profile. And, um, you know, if you see me adding you on that one or if you add me on that one, I'll accept. Um, just, you know, understand that uh, my other two profiles are currently in what they call Facebook jail. And then finally... Um, regarding the protest, um, I think it was brilliant what the uh, white supremacists have uh, attempted to do um, in distracting from um, the overall uh, message or the purpose of uh, the demonstrations and um, going ahead and uh, deflecting um, to the flag. I think that that was something that they did uh, uh, quite masterfully in the media. Uh, but uh, I suspect that uh, I suspect that uh, these protests will uh, continue and they'll intensify their spreading to other sports. And um, 
provide a, uh, an example or a, a rallying point uh, with, or uh, I guess a, a, a good example of a, a white supremacist suspect um, that's directly attacking these uh, athletes. I think that um, we could just uh, expect to see more demonstrations, and I think that these demonstrations may intensify. But there is something that we should watch out for um, us victims is that uh, expect uh, suspected white supremacists to begin taking a knee for uh, any anything and expect this behavior to uh, at first uh, appear to be respectful, but um, in time uh, reveal itself to be uh, tacky, trashy, and uh, even, uh, uh, you know, you have to wait for it. Um, it may become um, uh, terroristic. So uh, that's my contribution for this week. Thank you so much. Um, I'll go ahead and mute my line at this point. Appreciate that, Mr. Steele. Uh, if we have other folks who have a hand up and we've not heard from you at all, uh, you should speak now. Go ahead. Other folks who have a hand up that we have not heard from at all? We already get the caller. Uh, last four digits, six. Three six one. Did we already? Oh, that was Mr. Steele. Sorry about that. Uh, the caller, uh, Roz, did we get you already? Uh, greetings to you, Gus. Um, greetings to all the other callers and listeners. Uh, wow, I didn't get to hear all of the clips. I was kind of uh, in between some things, but I was listening as well. And um, uh, I wanted to say a couple of things in regards to Donald Trump, just the way things are right now uh, in this how much he's uh, just obfuscating bigger issues like Puerto Rico and, and, and different things going around the country, going on around the country um, to focus on sports figures and different people in, uh, in sports, black people in sports to practice racism against the, I, I kid you not, the more I see the news, the more I think of Ben Tillman, um, I always just go back to the type of reading that we did on that text, uh, Ben Tillman and the Reconstruction of White Supremacy. And it's one thing to see white supremacy described on paper regarding history and to juxtapose it to what we're actually living through now. And to me, I wonder if he read that book. It just seems like the entire um, way that he is functioning was directly garnered from that text. I've just never seen anything quite like it. Um, and the, the longer he sits in office, the more um, I go back to that text that we read because it just seems to have had his entire presidency just just literally just laid out there in the way in which he's just following things almost directly the way it's written in that book. Um, so I just think that that was one of the most important books that we read, especially prior to him taking the presidency, just due to that that reason. Um, the clip that you played about the black male that was killed in St. Louis, and there was a white female that was speaking who said that basically she alluded to something that black people should not be rallying behind him because he was a criminal and a heroin addict. 
as if because, I mean, heroin deal, excuse me, and because he did deal heroin, for some reason, his life was worth less um, in, in her opinion. That's the way that her racist response and, and dialogue came across to me. And I just, like, it's just so interesting how they use language to try to create these issues within the our amongst our own people against our own people when the issue is white supremacy it's not whether or not he sold heroin white people are the drug dealers they're the the quintessential global drug dealers drug addicts drug propagators and and drug war propagators as well but yet once a black person and even if they if if they're a person who's a victim of someone else the first thing they do is seek to discredit that person or destroy their character in some form or fashion in order to turn other black people against that person so that we're not able to focus on the bigger issue of white supremacy. We're looking at that person's life history or something that they focus on in that person's life history, or they even make up because sometimes they're just dishonest and they'll just lie about a black person um, because the way that this system works, we're inherently criminal the way that they see us. So ultimately, I thought that that was just interesting, the way that she displayed her white supremacy and her racism by trying to uh, devalue his life based on any, and I would say alleged, because I don't know if he dealt heroin. This is what they're saying there. I don't believe it until, you know, something comes out to give some sort of concrete evidence. So I just wanted to kind of focus on that. Um, Also, the, when you were discussing uh, Werner von Braun, I found that to be quite fascinating, um, just because white, and a lot of times we don't think to look into names of these place, per, people, places, and things, or places that are named after people, and I'm glad that you did. It's just interesting, with Operation Paperclip, um, there were over 500 Nazis that were given political asylum underneath without the president's awareness of it because he they did bring that to him and he said no when I I've been I was researching that for a couple of years actually and even though he was against it the the other high ranking more powerful white people that were underneath the president decided to do it anyway without his approval and um from what I learned the vast majority of those Nazis moved to Texas, which is one of the, from what I understand, one of the reasons why Texas has the highest concentration of white supremacists in the country um, is due to the fact that a lot of those Nazis moved to that area and they gave them new names, they gave them new identities, they completely disconnected them from their history in Germany in order for them to be able to pick up or continue the work that they were doing in Germany here, which is basically uh, practicing racism against black people and figuring out ways that they can kill us, whether it's genetic based or science or whatever they could do to figure out ways to get rid of us. That's what they were um, given asylum for. And lastly, um, I thought about something. I had an interesting experience. I would say it's a workplace racism experience, even though I went there, went to the place for service. Um, the intro, I went to Sprint. I was having trouble with my phone. So I was going to see if I can get it repaired. I couldn't. So I had to get a wireless charger and I did that. But during the time that I was there, I saw a white man do something that I found to be, I'd never seen it done before. There might be other people who've experienced this. You might have as well, Gus, but we were sitting there and they were playing music um, in the store. At one point, the music got kind of loud and then someone turned it down a little bit and then it went somehow, I guess somebody else turned it back up. So this white uh, patron of the store Literally, I don't know where the music, the controls to the music were. He figured out where it was and he went and turned the music off. 
And one of the workers who seemed to be like Middle Eastern or something asked him, well, you know, why did you turn off the music? And he said, um, you know, it was really getting on my nerves. It happened to be Michael Jackson's Thriller. He said, it happened, it's, it's getting on my nerves and it's too loud. So I turned it off. So then he looked at the guy and he was about to turn it back up to like really loud. And I guess he didn't want to further agitate the guy because his reaction when he even asked him was almost like, well, who do you think you want to ask me about that? So shortly afterwards, the man left the store and he said, and he said, well, I would like to just go into that guy's house and turn off his music and see how he feels about it because he's in, he's at work. And I mean, they have music playing in the store as most stores do. Sometimes, you know, they'll usually have it at an ambient level where it's not too loud, but all stores in the mall have music playing. And for this white guy to just feel that he could just go up in there as a stranger and just turn the music off was just incredible because I'd never seen that done by a patron. But that goes back to what you said about regular white people having power in the system and, and, and or just taking that power and doing what they want to do, regardless of who's there or whose space it is. That was the greatest example of that. And then another thing I saw that made me think about um, non-white people and the discussions we have on the job. At one point, there was a song that came on because I think part of their music uh, library is connected to Tidal since Tidal and Sprint have this contractual relationship with each other. And one of the songs that came on was Omarion. And there's a, a line where he talks about eating booties like groceries. And they started having a discussion in front of one of their white coworkers about this the the female the uh, non-white female who was helping me um, about that being her favorite line in the song and she's just you know jousting with him back and forth about this line and I'm like you are sitting around all these white people talking about deviant sexual behavior in a song that shouldn't even be playing in the store if that's the you know if this is a store you shouldn't even be playing music that has that stuff but then you're having this discussion on your job amongst your white coworkers and I was just just totally blown away like wow they need a code i didn't say anything to anyone i was just taking it all in and i just found it quite fascinating that they didn't understand the ramifications of those types of discussions um on the job and it was just mind-blowing to me and the woman the young woman who was helping me happened to be from uh puerto rico and i i asked her because i have uh, a number of people who i know that have relatives in puerto rico and they're having a very very hard time uh, finding them, figuring out where they are, whether or not they're dead or alive. And earlier this week, I saw that people started dying from not having access to their basic necessities that are sitting in the ports around Puerto Rico that uh, Donald Trump is removing to, I mean, refusing to have uh, distributed in a timely manner. And um, she said that half her family was already in the United States, so they're accounted for. The other half was in Puerto Rico. And um, some of them, she said, were refusing to leave just because they kind of see that they want to take over this island, excuse me, and eventually gentrify it. So they're defiant and they want to stay. So she said she had an aunt who lived in a housing complex. And in that complex, it seemed like they had some sort of prepping thing going on there because she said that they had um, the, the building itself, the complex had their own reservoir. So they provide up to two hours of water per day for everyone in the complex. And with the two hours, they can shower, wash, wash, wash what they need. And then also save, water as far as putting it in containers where they can use it throughout the other um, 22 hours of the day until the next day when they ration the water. She said they, um, her aunt had somewhere where she was able to get ice. 
they had meat stashed in different um, coolers, and they literally had, she said, they have parties every day where, like, everyone in the complex cooks together. They invite people from the surrounding area if, they're not, if they don't have water or electricity or food that they can come and eat with them. And she said that's how they've been surviving. So it just made me think about the whole idea of just trying to be prepared, doing little things, um, even little things, just collecting dry goods, anything that, that will last an uh, extended period of time. So if you end up in a situation like that, you're able to fend for yourself or even work collectively with other black people to facilitate being able to survive together as a collective, you know, in the event something like this happens, like her relatives, some of her relatives were able to do. So um, okay, that's it. I wanted to say thank you so much, Gus. A great program. I'll mute my line. Oh, sure. Making sure we... Uh... Don't miss out on anybody. Uh, any yes, folks, any folks that we missed completely? Uh, anybody that has a hand up that we've not heard from at all? Uh, you should speak now. Yes, can I be heard? Yes, sir. Uh, yes, sir. Uh, Brian from Atlanta. I'm a new caller. Um, I had a couple things I wanted to say. Um, one of the first things, I guess, is uh, I'm a former military vet. I used to be in the Air Force. And uh, I noticed that everyone was praising the suspected racist general uh, who was, um, you know, talking about the, the students who were being racist against the cadet. The reason why I think he's a suspected racist is because he did not speak of any punishment. And I can tell you from someone who was in the military that um, that's certainly a punishable offense. And the fact that, uh, and, I, and I've seen non-white um, members of the military uh, get punished for, I wouldn't say, I, I wouldn't say far less, but, uh, other infractions like being late to work, you know, I've seen people get court-martialed. Like these are, this is like being late to work is a little, is the equivalent of breaking the law in the military. It is a different set of rules. And so the fact that, and just, I just say that to say that, um, you can be punished. You can be harshly punished and imprisoned for things that are not crimes outside of the military. So for the fact that these uh, cadets are being allowed to, and this is the academy, so these are officers. When an officer is someone who's automatically in a leadership or supervisory position, even from day one that they are actually in, once they graduate school. So the fact that he's going to allow, potentially allow these suspected racists to uh, be over non-white people to further... Uh, give unjust punishment and not punish them when a non-white person, uh, if they were in the military talking about kill whitey, kill crap, anything like that, they would have been discharged immediately. Um, so I just wanted to say that about that. Um, another thing I wanted to say, too, uh, I've listened to some of uh, Neil, Brother Fuller's uh, previous podcast and there's something that he always says that I kind of disagree with, and I also heard it on some of the archives here, and that's that there's only uh, two races, white and non-white. And I kind of have a big problem with that, uh, because if we look at the history of white people, uh, they have a history of making people who were once classified as non-white white, like the Irish and the Italians and things like that. And the reason why I bring that up is because I'm noticing – uh, with the Asian community in particular, it seems like because white people know they're dying genetically, that they're getting ready to make Asians the next group of white people or the next group of formerly non-white people to be white people. Um, I noticed like even Dylan Roof went out of his way in his manifesto to praise East Asians 
uh, Jared Taylor, and, you know, these are obviously white extremists who are unusually, exceptionally honest for white people. But, uh, you know, Jared Taylor, he's another white extremist who's very open about his white supremacist views. Uh, one of the first things he uses to deny the fact that he's a racist is to say he believes that a- Asians are smarter than white people, so would that make him a yellow supremacist? Um, when we look at Africa, the, the Chinese are using a lot of uh, formerly European colonial tactics to uh, plunder the resources from Africa. They're using, they use Akon as a black face. To, they they uh, falsely claim that it was him installing a bunch of solar panels in Africa when it was them. I don't see why you would hide behind Akon unless you're, you know, refining your white supremacy skills. You know, I don't understand why people are, are doing stuff like that, you know, um, using black celebrities and claim that they're financing something when they're not. Um, so just a lot of stuff like that. Um, and plus, you know, the white supremacists or the suspected white supremacists are now using melanin injections to preserve their skin and uh, keep from being uh, killed by the sun. Um, so if white people are willing to inject themselves with melanin, I don't think it's too far of a reach to say that they would uh, one day um, confer white status to the people we now know as Asians. Um, and those are the two things I wanted to do. Oh, and one more thing I wanted to get out of the way. I, I'm, I know a lot of people on this broadcast are less confused than most. Um, so the other thing I would say is I know probably a lot of people have already probably seen this themselves, but I just want black people to know, to understand that don't allow white people to make you uh, try to explain about the flag or, or claim it's not about racism because it is, it's all, or, or, I mean, it's not about the anthem or cop and please, because it is about the anthem. The anthem talks about killing slaves, talks about killing people who were fighting for their, the only people who were fighting for their freedom during that war. Um, the history of America is, has been nothing but racism, nothing but white supremacy. Uh, so, you know, there's black troops, including my grandfather, who served in the military in 1947 and came back to Jim Crow racism. So, all this false rah-rah patriotism, it's, a, it's because the flag in America means white supremacy and the success of white supremacy. And that's what people don't like. And it's so vicious that these white supremacists, their stories, they're threatening 11-year-old children, high school or middle school football players who are kneeling. So this has nothing to do with the flag and, and respect for the flag. It has everything to do with white supremacy and, and the, the symbolism of black people disrespecting uh, the, the prestige and the, the benefits and the monies that they've gotten from white supremacy. That's why they're supposed to be also grateful, uh, et cetera, et cetera. And uh, I, I say I, that's all I got to say. Oh, and what I was saying about me disagreeing with the non-white theory, that's no disrespect. I mean, even Dr. Fuller says, you know, you don't have to agree with him. Just, just consider the logic and see if it makes sense to you. So that's why I, I spoke my little two cents on that. I have the utmost, utmost respect for uh, Brother Fuller. And that's it. That's all I have to say. Thank you. Thank you for hearing me. Yes, sir. I did want to make sure I got in. Uh, Mr. Fuller uh, has actually said that there is only one race, and that is the white race. Uh, I think he's been uh, and emphasized that uh, to say that all of the non-white people, regardless of what your racial classification is, uh, you do not belong to a race. The only reason for belonging to a race is to practice racism 
and that the only race on the planet is the white race, uh, and that uh, in terms of racial classifications, I've heard him say consistently and write out white, non-white, and white supremacist. Uh, he has said that there are three racial, uh, racial classifications. Uh, I have said that there are only two. It's white supremacist and non-white. Uh, I would think myself, Mr. Fuller, I think some other folks, Asian is not on the list. Uh, you got in terms of race, one race, white race, in terms of racial classification, white, non-white, white supremacist. That's what Mr. Fuller says. I say really in terms of functionality, you just got white supremacist and not white. Asian is not listed anywhere there. And what you said is true. Uh, racists, they have done that throughout the entirety of racism, white supremacy to grab a non-white person or to grab anybody and change their racial classification, particularly the most powerful white supremacists. Uh, they can grab anyone and just say, well, yeah, this person yesterday, they were not white. Today, we're going to say that they're white. And that's that. Uh, and they have the power to make that happen. Uh, I don't know that... Uh, I guess what you were saying in terms of quote unquote Asians or these other folks, they might be classified as white. I certainly don't think that all of them are going to be classified as white. I mean, you're talking about billions with a B individuals on the planet that are classified as quote unquote Asian. I certainly do not see all of those folks ending up being classified as white. That would be a, a very interesting day when someone like Manny Pacquiao or Kim Jong-un is classified as white. I've seen no evidence of that, uh, but whites racists They certainly do manipulate racial classifications to their benefit all the time. That is what racism, white supremacy means. Why I encourage asking, are you white? Make sure you know what their uh, racial classification is. We have folks, we uh, other folks we've not heard from at all. Uh, anybody that has a hand up that we've not heard from at all? May I be heard? Yes, ma'am. Hello, this is Red from Ohio. Thank you for taking my call. Hello to everyone. Um, just a few short things. It's not going to be a long commentary. Um, I had went to, I just let everyone know, I actually went to another um, open house for another um, black student um, who I'm actually the, I guess the quote unquote godmother. I don't know if that's a metaphor. I'm sorry. That's just basically the title that I was given. And this child is actually, I, a black female, a young black female, she goes to an African-centered school. And just a few um, observations that I, I noticed, um, I, I didn't expect for there to be as many um, white teachers at this African-centered school because um, most of the student body is non-white. I think um, out of the 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 little black girls class there was only maybe one uh i guess quote unquote hispanic um not not black not white um child in the class and i really didn't see that many as we were walking around <laughs> the other thing is that i was actually admonished from asking any questions to the teacher because the the black child's teacher is actually a white man, which I, I found to be really interesting. And so I did have a few questions that I wanted to ask, but the the mother of the child told me I didn't I couldn't ask them because she was afraid of how maybe the teacher would react, especially since I'm somewhat affiliated with the child. But um, I, I noticed I noticed that the um, and 
I I didn't understand that they actually have um, the child the children have the option of basically calling the teacher like a term of endearment like um, like mother such and such like so if the if the teacher's name is last name is Smith they can call them Mother Smith or um, uh, Father I don't know Jones something like that and so I thought that was it, it seemed a little problematic for me, especially with there being white teachers within the school, really, you know, any, you know, person that the child is not um, related to calling them like that type of, of name. Um, I don't have all my notes about the school because, again, I couldn't really ask questions. Uh, the one thing that I, I did appreciate at least because um, something that I had brought up in a, in a different um uh, show when I I cannot remember the the black male who had started I think it was he had started his own school and I'd asked him the question well how do you kind of get around having an African centered school and they uh, and and you still have to basically go by the curriculum of whatever city state what have you that you're in and it seems like this particular school they still basically have to go by the same. Uh, school curriculum that the white supremacists have put forth, um, especially when it comes to testing. That was one of the things that they basically stressed within the um, open house presentation about, you know, this is what we have to do um, since we are a school that receives government funding. Um, the other thing is that with I'm I'm actually glad that I have been learning from not just the cows but other um, things that I've tried to learn from, other avenues that i tried to learn from as far as with the protests. And I'm not going to um, speak too much about it because it seems like it's been spoken about so many times that I'm not necessarily um, putting too much confidence within uh, in the in the Black people who are protesting because, you know, the white supremacists, if they decide to, you know, spin them, find them, find the players, whatever, I don't want to, you know, lose hope or, you know, get mad at these black people because of something that the white supremacists should do. Uh, I'm sorry, something that the white supremacists have done or suspected white supremacists have done. Um, always just refocusing our attention on the white supremacists. They are the ones who, like someone else has said, they are the ones who are most in charge. Um, and I've also taken this, uh, what's, what's happening this has actually been a good opportunity to speak with my mother about um, racism, white supremacy, and actually speaking the words at least suspected white supremacists and my mother not um, wanting to immediately end the conversation so I can at least say that some good has come out of um, the protest. So I can at least try to let her know some of the things that I have learned and even going back to um, I'm, it's kind of hard for me to understand um, how the United States has or, or white people within the United States have, um, I guess what they would call defended the freedoms of this country, which is something that I've been hearing a lot in regards to the protests um, by fighting all these different wars. And we kind of spoke about how it doesn't really seem like the wars that the United States has um, um gotten into seem like they have actually uh, been to protect any quote unquote freedoms that the United States has, uh, the United States has had. Um, thank you for letting me uh, share and I'll meet myself. Thank you.
Great job. Keep up the great work with your, uh, I guess, godchild. And uh, I guess none of us should be too surprised uh, with the school situation. And uh, it seems like the national pattern in this part of the world is to not hire too many black teachers, black educators. Uh, None of us should be too stunned, even if it's some sort of independent school or regardless of what type of academic uh, program it is, if there are a sizable number of race soldiers who end up being in front of the classroom. Uh, That seems to be pretty consistent uh, in this part of the world. Uh, And I think great advice to not be disappointed uh, about what happens with the uh, protest. I think they had a game on Thursday night and not one player took a knee. Not that I was, you know, in tears about that or even surprised. (laughs) But yeah, that, you know, business as usual. Uh, We have our own code and should be going about business. Uh, counter-racist business, that is. Uh, Do we have any other folks who had a hand up that we have not heard from at all? Uh, If you have a hand up and we haven't heard from you, you should certainly speak now. Can I be heard? Yes, sir. Uh, Peace to Gus, the host. Peace to everybody listening. And peace to everybody out there who uh, cannot speak but may be listening later on in the week. Uh, It has been... An amazing week. This is V from Central New York, right outside of Syracuse. Um, I joined the program late, so I am unable to give um, commentary on the clips. But um, I just so happened to have had a couple of conversations in the uh, previous week, over the the last couple weeks, that dealt with... um, the controversy on kneeling during the football game and most of them or excuse me one of them was really notable because it was after work and a woman a white woman older than me actually approached me and said i don't want to really start anything and so if you know, this is going to make you uncomfortable. Please let me know. And I'll actually, you know, you don't have to answer this, which I was kind of surprised about. But she asked me what I felt about it. And I asked her if she wanted me to be honest or to kind of sugarcoat it. And she said, no, you're pretty well-spoken. So let me kind of hear it. And I said, well, um, in, in a vein of not wanting to make you angry or disrespect your family, because I know you have uh, people who have fought in wars. Uh, I I don't see the problem with, you know, anybody kneeling during the Pledge of Allegiance. It's a song for black people. It's not our national anthem. It is white people's national anthem. She said, why would you say that? That's insane. We're all Americans. Well, not really. Then I started telling her some history specifically how uh, after World War I and uh, during World War II and even after World War II uh, and many other wars, may I say, but definitely those ones because black people uh, are often cited for their work in especially World War II, but also more recently World War I, um, when black towns were invaded by white hordes who had become enraged because, I don't know, a black person might have looked strangely at a white woman, how some black people, believing it would help their families, dressed in uniform, stood outside of their homes, 
sometimes uh, with the with the stars and stripes waving behind them or on their home for protection, those people were shot down, their homes were burnt, and their families were often murdered, or if not harassed into leaving the the house before it was burnt. That the service that they had had, therefore, I told her, did not didn't prevent them from being seen as just another dead Negro or dead nigger. And even in the Vietnam War, I further explained, black people were literally sent to die on the front line in increased numbers by the Pentagon because they wanted to stop what they considered the spread of black radicalism at home by getting as many young black men to the front lines as they could. She said, that can't be true. That it is 100% true. The Pentagon has admitted it. Uh, it's very easy to check. And she said, so that's why black people kneel. And I said, that and also in the third stanza of the national anthem, blah, blah, blah. She said, huh, never knew that. And I said, so what do you think? Well, I look at it a little differently. Thank you. And she walked away. I've heard nothing more of it, but I'm keeping it in the back of my mind. If that's a metaphor, I'm sorry, but I'm definitely keeping it in my meta in my um, memory because some strange uh, events have been occurring recently at work where um, several people have been asking me during work about racial issues and questioning me about race. And um, I've noticed this has increased as we have um, the the population of non-white people have uh, really grown over the last month at my job. More um, Pacific Islanders. Uh, we we now have uh, several people from I think it's um, Somalia and Sudan and and the Sudan working there. And so we went from pretty much two black people and two Filipinas to I think now we're up to about 15 or 20 non-white people working on the floor with us. So um, I've noticed this increase in fervor, and I'm thinking what's probably what they're trying to do is um, they're trying to create a circumstance where I'm saying things, where then they can go and report them, and then I'd have to have a talk, and then if there's enough talk, maybe I'll get fired because a lot of these non-white people tend to have some respect for me. And um, I've been told this by many of them, that they see me as somebody who can help them. So um, I'm definitely ca uh, conscious of that. And I really owe that consciousness a lot to this show. Uh, this really helped me and made me realize that a lot of things I'm seeing, uh, it wasn't because I was crazy. So thank you, Gus. Um, uh, when my finances are finally taken care of, uh, when the problems that I've been having recently finally handled, I plan on definitely supporting the show. Again, thank you very much for the work that you do. Peace to you and peace to your home. Appreciate that. I think we talked about that on workplace racism, Thursday's workplace racism, uh, bringing up some of these issues and talking about that on the job. I said it might be good to have a code for that, too. Uh, if you get asked about 
uh, either the anthem protests or Trump or, you know, whatever aspect of it, to have a code in terms of what you say, what you don't say, uh, particularly on the job, uh, my recommendation would be to have as little to say as possible if it's a white person or a non-white person. I think that came up this past week, too, even talking to another black person on the job can be dangerous given the circumstances but well thursday workplace racism 8 p.m eastern 5 p.m pacific uh do we have other folks make sure i did not uh miss it seems like uh we should have more parents did we have any other parents who have a code about how you respond if your child is verbally not physically touched but verbally uh assaulted or mistreated by a white adult, uh, male or female, might adult. We have any other parents who had a code on that? If we want to get responses in the last few minutes before we uh, conclude, that would be good. And or if we have anyone who has not shared at all, if we have anyone who has a hand up that we have missed completely, you should go ahead and speak immediately. Can I be heard? I heard both of you. Go ahead, Firefighter. Oh, go ahead, Firefighter. I'll, I'll go after you, sir. And peace to you, too. Good evening. Yes, sir. Thank you. I, I was just going to give a response uh, from a uh, attempted parent uh, perspective. Uh, you, you said on if the uh, white person uh, was saying something to uh, your child. Correct. Saying I would, I would, I would uh, say uh, the correct code that I would use is just re- remove uh, the child from the uh, the uh, white person. Hmm. That is simple. That is simple. I'm trying to. Even uh, think- I mean, I, yeah. That 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 basically would be the the uh, the, the code, and and I'm basing my code on logic. Uh, as far as they're concerned, because uh, by me or the child uh, adding on and making it a, com- a quote-unquote argument and or conversation, it only is going to turn worse, which can ev- eventually, uh, as far as from a, uh, from a uh, historical standpoint, uh, can only turn out bad for the non-white person or persons. As far from a from a uh, uh, historical perspective, uh, to quickly remove that person from that you care about, it doesn't have to be your child. It can be anybody you really care about. Actually, remove that person from that uh, particular uh, environment as soon as possible. Mm. I'm remembering the situation that what precipitated me asking this question, the situation in Utah, I believe it was Uh, in that situation. I think the victim, the uh, attempted father in that situation, I think he could have used your suggestion there and just taken the child in the house. And that might have kept the child and himself safe, because in that situation, the father got uh, tased uh, by this race soldier. And that's something else I think should not be minimized uh, that in the system of white supremacy, you never know. If the white person, male or female, that you're having contact with, you never know if that person is armed, if they have a weapon, uh, if they have other whites who are waiting to come join them in some sort of confrontation. White people are extremely dangerous. That's not something that should be uh, minimized, in my view. Uh, Roz, give me one second. Let me just make sure this is not a person that we missed. 
Uh, person with the headset on, I think you dialed in uh, on the vote line, perhaps. Did you have commentary that you wanted to get in? Just making sure we didn't miss anyone. Well, yes. Can you hear me? Yes, ma'am. Okay, thank you. Uh, good evening. I was just wanting to quickly comment about the, um, the child. Um, I think the overlying problem uh, that we have, underlying overlying problem that we have is that um, we need to be able to homeschool our own children until we're able to build a foundation of education um, after we've replaced white supremacy with justice. I don't really see these quick fixes as the answer, um, but you have to do something in the moment. But as an um, overarching goal, uh, it's time that we um, take our children out of the system. Uh, I know that's a tall order for some, but um, that's a long-term goal, if not um, sooner. Um, my contribution has to do with uh, the magazine. We have a local magazine in my community, uh, predominantly white, and um, it, it comes out <laughs> once a week. And I go through it just to see what's going on in the local area. And uh, I check the um, activities, the dance. Uh, they have uh, things like Victorian social dancing, wedding dancing, um, uh, sock hop, etc. Uh, a new entry in this latest uh, magazine uh, entry was uh, colonial dancing. So that's new. Thought I would bring that up, just uh, of interest. Never been there before, but uh, I think their thinking is uh, reverting back to type. Thank you. Colonial dancing—that is one I have not heard. I'm not familiar with uh, myself. Wow. Uh, I I certainly support, encourage uh, folks looking for alternatives, getting their non-white children, particularly black children. Uh, out of public school system uh, that is outstanding, looking for alternatives and working on that plan before conception. That is really being A-plus with your codification as an attempted parent. Uh, but the situation in Utah, that did not happen at school. In fact, that happened uh, at the person's residence, unless I'm misinformed. So that that will not entirely uh, resolve problems with black children uh, being abused by uh, racists. Uh, Roz, did you have commentary you were going to get in? Thank you for your being patient, sir. No problem. Thank you. Uh, yes, um, I wanted to first answer the question about the situation uh, with the young young black child being uh, terrorized by the white male and his father getting tased. Yeah, I think the firefighter in Florida said it. Um, now that I'm less confused, I would immediately take him as far away from that person as possible um, just to make sure that my concern would be his emotional stability, his emotional health, and making sure that, that he's okay. Um, and in, in so doing, I don't think that would be the predicament or situation or environment to address the white male unless there was someone who could take the child away from the situation. Um, and even so, I th still wouldn't think that way. I, I would just think getting the child up out of there as quickly as possible is the best thing to do. When I was younger, and more confused, um, I would have probably wanted, I would have put hands on him and it probably would have escalated. I might have lost my life that day. Um, I just know myself. I was always a pretty quick on the trigger as far as responding to um, 
to anything that I thought was potentially a violent situation. I was really quick about that. So knowing me and when I was younger, absolutely, I would have been more confused and made a horrible error. Um, now that I'm older and less confused, absolutely, like the firefighter said, get that child away from that situation as, as quickly as possible and um, just try to um, make sure that they feel reassured and at some point um, use that as a teachable moment to help them understand the system of white supremacy. That would be the other thing I would do. Maybe not that day, but at a later date after the child has had time to <clears throat> excuse me, process the situation and just I would just touch base with the child regularly just to make sure that they're okay, they're not traumatized by it, and if they need any further um, mental assistance, and then maybe a few days later, then use that as a teachable moment about the system of white supremacy and about the um, the guy who was uh, discussing the situation about the flag with his white coworker. I didn't realize it was his coworker until later on and after what he was saying. Yeah, in that situation, no, no racial issues should be discussed on the job whatsoever, in my opinion. Um, and that documentary in the Vietnam War that's, that's on um, PBS, they're now out to the 10th and last episode, and they say exactly what you said, that they excuse me, purposefully put um, enormous numbers of black males on the front line. Um, they didn't say the reasoning, which your reasoning is completely correct, in my opinion, and logical, but um, they did state that they put just an inordinate number of black men on the front lines to die um, in place of the white people. And then also just the way that white people in the, in the film describe killing non-white people, the glee and the, the high, they spoke of getting a high from killing non-white people and when you would hear the black people discuss it they would talk about losing a piece of themselves their humanity being lost with having to kill another person just the way that the term in which they discussed was just incredibly um different um they exposed that every president four presidents that were involved in that situation all lied and they exposed all the lies they told from day one it's a phenomenal treatise on white supremacy and how it functions on a global scale and how it functions on large collectors of non-white people when you see the destruction that the vietnamese uh just perpetrated on each other each other excuse me once the americans pulled out it is just flabbergastingly phenomenal um, in regards to the amount of violence and the just horrific things that they did to each other once the white people pulled themselves out of the equation. I'll mute my line there, but I think that's a documentary everyone should uh, should check out if you get a chance. Thank you. Ken Burns, indeed. Uh, we have about three minutes left. Uh, did anybody have any final thoughts they wanted to make sure they get in last three minutes? Yeah, can I can I ask a couple of questions, please? Yes, sir. Yes, I um, quickly regarding the parenting um, situation, I would I would just say, and I, and I, I had given my experience earlier, and I said I did not have a code, but I, I would want to just throw an option out there of parents thinking about um, about not turning the other cheek and 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 issues of our children um, and our and our attempted offspring. I think we should look at at um, at every possibility and. Um, and that may include um, compensatory actions. I don't think we should, we should rule it out, and I don't think we should be quick to be violent, um, but I definitely think with our children, you would not, you would not um, approach a mother bear and her cubs. Um, you know that that would mean imminent danger, and she would remind you, although she might not harm you. Um, but I do think uh, as non-white people, we should consider they, uh, white people, if they maybe knew there would be ramifications with, 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 um, with assaulting our children, uh, they, they might not 
be so apt to do so. Um, I did have a question regarding a potential guest. I don't know if you've heard or have possibly interviewed this, um, this non-white female, um, Walida Imarisha. She is a um, activist, writer, and educator from Oregon, um, part of the world known as Oregon. And she has a couple of um, YouTube lectures and um, some writings, academic writings, regarding why there are no black people in the state of Oregon. Um, I thought she was extremely um, informed and, and um, um, as far as t teaching non-white people and uh, some of the white people in her classes she, she, she teaches regarding the system of racism and white supremacy. And my final comment was regarding the Civil Air Patrol. Um, I have never heard of them before. They're a wing of the Air Force. I was very shocked at how non-white people, or how white people rather, um, are always prepared for war. Apparently there's almost 100,000 civilians in this country who are um, kind of shadow unlisted and they work in volunteer roles. Um, I recently found out about them and I thought it might be helpful for non-white people who want research uh, to look up the Civil Air Patrol and what they do in this part of the world. Thank you. Appreciate that, appreciate that. Um, I get number one, metaphors, uh, turn the other cheek, that is certainly a metaphor. And uh, the contrast to Bear's response, that is also uh, a metaphor uh, on, on the response. Did anybody else have a, a quick comment that they can get in in 60 seconds or less before we conclude? I do. Can you hear me, Doug? Yes, ma'am. Regarding um, the Utah incident, I didn't um, I spoke a bit out of turn not knowing that situation, but I would say in the community uh, when a child is uh, harassed, terrorized in that manner by uh, the system of white supremacy that I think overarching goal would still be something in uh, the line of having a group response. We need our own communities. Other people have other communities that they feel quite safe in. We are quite vulnerable. I think one response to that would be creating our own communities, even in the face of white supremacy and the system of white supremacy at this time, and certainly um, replacing the system of white supremacy um, long-term, short-term possibly as well. Thank you. Indeed. Uh, we will be here. The uh, guest or suggested guest that you mentioned, the previous caller, uh, I, we have not had her as a guest on the program, but I believe I'm familiar with her work. Uh, we had a pair of uh, Oregon documentarians on the program the night that they announced that there would be no charges for the killing of Michael Brown Jr. in 2000, 2014. Uh, we had a pair of uh, filmmakers on the program, and they were referencing uh, her work uh, and talking about the whole history of white supremacy in the state of Oregon and uh, how they worked in the state's constitution specifically to make sure that there were no Negras in Oregon. Uh, but we'll double check. I think I even inquired about her coming on the program at that time. I have to go make, go look back to make sure I'm not uh, making that up or my memory failing me. Uh, at any rate, as I said, I think Mr. Walter Beach III should be on the program this coming Wednesday, October 4th. I'm going to speak with him on Monday to confirm. He said even if we couldn't do it on Wednesday, that he should have time to speak with us this week. So even if it's not on Wednesday, he should be visiting the cows shortly. Uh, I'm excited to have him on the broadcast. I think you'll have some great perspective. This is someone who worked with Muhammad Ali when he was trying to 
avoid being drafted into said Vietnam conflict, uh, was won a, a championship with Jim Brown, has read Mr. Fuller's work and quotes him on a regular basis. Uh, I think he's a lot less confused, and it'll be great to hear someone from his era who is certainly would qualify as an activist athlete uh, to hear his thoughts on what's been happening uh, with all of the kneel downs and what have you. But that should be, uh, I think, as I said, Wednesday, 8 p.m. Eastern, 5 p.m. Pacific. If you have other questions, comments, uh, guest suggestions, feel free. Email untiljustice at gmail.com. Untiljustice at gmail.com. Huge thanks to all the folks who dialed in. Hope it was a constructive investment of your Saturday evening. Uh, again, I would encourage sobriety would be best under conditions of white supremacy. If you're getting out, if you're frolicking for the weekend, fine, have fun. Make sure your fun does not cause more problems. And it's been my experience. I think there's a lot of evidence that frequently uh, when we are intoxicated, we do not make the best decisions. And sometimes racists they exploit that big time. Uh, let's make sure that our brain computer, uh, that we are taking care of ourselves so that we can think at a high level and crank out solutions to the problem facing us. Racist woman, racist man, racist child. And also, if you're going to be in a vehicle, buckle up. Even if you're a passenger or the driver, buckle up. Let's do everything that we can to minimize contact with enforcement officials that said creator we ask that you help us remain patient with other black people victims of white supremacy we ask that you help us remain patient with ourselves remind us to demonstrate the highest levels of black self-respect at all times in all places each and every time we are in contact with another black person. It has been time. Replace white supremacy with justice immediately. Cows signing out. Thanks all for tuning in. Nigga, you so brainwashed. I'm a victim, What's brother. You're a victim. Yeah. I'm a up. victim of 400 years of conditioning. Shut up. The man has programmed my conditioning. Mm -hmm. Even my conditioning has been conditioned. Yeah.